From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Emily Fang. Coming up, what a divided Congress means for President Biden's agenda. High schoolers step up to become community health workers. And if you're looking for book recommendations for the new year, we have them here. Plus, we meet one of Taiwan's biggest pop stars who sings in her indigenous tongue. But first, the news. It's New Year's Day, Sunday, January 1st, 2023. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. It's a new year, but Russia is continuing its deadly assault on Ukraine. There were missile and drone attacks on Kyiv in the hours after midnight, but there are only minor reports of damage. Ukraine says its air defense has knocked down more than 30 Iranian-made drones. Recent attacks include those on Kharkiv, a region that Kyiv has largely taken back. NPR's Tim Mack reports Ukrainian troops are combing former Russian defensive positions in the region for evidence of war crimes. Near the border with Russia, Ukrainian soldiers close to the front lines are trudging through thick mud. Brigadier General Serhiy Melnik, who is in charge of the region's defense, is looking at a pile of spent artillery shells spread out on an open field. Melnik said this is a spot where Russian artillery was once based and fired on the city of Kharkiv. He said they fired not only on military targets, but also the civilian infrastructure of the city, committing war crimes. Over the past year, prosecutors in the Kharkiv region estimated that about 10,000 apartment buildings and homes were destroyed by Russian bombardment. Over the last few days, Russia continued launching more deadly strikes on Ukraine, including on Kharkiv. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kharkiv. The British prosecutor who led the case against Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic is calling for President Putin to be tried for war crimes committed in Ukraine. Sir Jeffrey Nice told the BBC the case against the Russian leader could not be clear, saying Putin is guilty of crimes against humanity because of the bombing of civilian targets. He's not brought them back to be tried for what are obvious crimes. That's because he is in charge. They're doing what he wants, and he's a guilty man. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky accusing Moscow of following the devil with attacks on civilians. He delivered a New Year's message after President Putin devoted his New Year's address to rallying the Russian people behind troops fighting in Ukraine. More drivers than expected will be able to take advantage of new tax credits for electric vehicles this year. The tax rules kick in today, and the IRS just released new guidance about how they work. NPR's Camila Dominoski reports on a window of opportunity for shoppers. The new tax credits are supposed to be limited by stringent battery sourcing rules, but the IRS still hasn't finalized those requirements. So between now and March, the battery requirement simply doesn't apply. Vehicles can get the tax credit as long as they were assembled in the U.S. and come in under a price cap, wherever the battery comes from. The IRS also says that leased vehicles can get a different tax credit, one that is much easier to qualify for and even covers cars made overseas. Senator Joe Manchin, who pushed for the Made in America requirements, called the announcement unacceptable. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston area Catholic scholars are remembering Pope Benedict XVI as an influential conservative intellectual who faced challenges as a leader. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports on local reaction to the Pope's death. Boston College theology professor Thomas Groom says that Pope Benedict was always most comfortable in the library and ill-suited to handle the ongoing clergy sex scandal and other controversies. In many ways, his most lasting contribution, how will he be remembered uh, 500 years from now, is the fact that he resigned as Pope. Benedict stepped down in 2013. He was the first Pope to resign in six centuries. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Today, the state's minimum wage increases to $15 an hour. That's up from $14.25. It is the final hike as part of a law approved five years ago. Massachusetts now has one of the highest minimum wages in the country, along with California, Washington State, and Washington, D.C. The federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. This morning, the L Street Brownies carry on the long tradition of celebrating the new year with a swim in the ocean. L Street Brownie Dan Monahan says taking the plunge in water temperatures in the 30s or 40s can be almost medicinal. It feels great. It's the craziest thing in the world. You come in, it's freezing on, you come out of that water, you feel fantastic. And it's just like a rejuvenation, if you will. You know, all of us do believe we call it the water the big blue pill, which means it's going to make you feel healthy and you feel better when you come out. The Swim Club's annual January 1st adventure draws hundreds of people to South Boston's L Street Beach to brave the icy water. In sports this afternoon at Gillette, the Patriots play the Miami Dolphins. If the Pats lose, then their playoff hopes are over. Tonight, the Celtics take on the Nuggets in Denver. It's 53 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, and temperatures staying in the mid-50s, lows in the mid-30s overnight. Still mild tomorrow, mostly sunny with Monday's highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor-advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at FJC.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang, and for Aisha Roscoe. Thank you, as always, for joining us, and Happy New Year. Let's start with politics. President Biden returns to Washington tomorrow, and Congress will be back on Tuesday for what could be a year of intense partisan conflict. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith joins us to explain how the year might play out. Good morning and Happy New Year, Tamara. Good morning, Emily. Happy New Year. Thank you. So President Biden said he'd spend these holidays talking with his family about his political future. Does that mean he's going to announce soon whether he'll run for a second term in 2024? All indications are that is where he's headed. And since the midterms, even Democrats who were openly skeptical of Biden have fallen in line behind the idea of him running again. Biden aides, including his chief of staff, have been quite bullish about the president's improved standing and the likelihood of an official announcement coming, though the timing for that announcement is less clear and they aren't feeling a ton of pressure because former President Trump, although he announced, hasn't really been campaigning. Hmm. Well, given that Democrats lost control of the House in November, what is President Biden realistically hoping to achieve uh, in the coming year? 
It's a divided Congress. In the first two years, Biden was shockingly successful at notching bipartisan legislative achievements right up to that big government funding bill that passed at the very end of the year. But there's a big difference this year with Republicans in charge of the House. A Republican House Speaker, whoever that ends up being, whether it be Kevin McCarthy or someone else, um, is not going to want to bring up bills uh, that don't have the support of the majority of their conference. Um, So much of the Biden administration's focus this year is going to be on implementation. That is making sure that all those bipartisan bills and not bipartisan bills that passed last year, things like the Inflation Reduction Act and uh, the infrastructure bill, making sure that those are implemented well and also that voters know where they came from. All right, let's cross the aisle. What do congressional Republicans have planned? They have a long list of bills, starting with a repeal of the inflation, a part of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that would hire more IRS agents. But that list mostly contains ideas that aren't going anywhere in the Senate. Uh, you can also expect a wide range of investigations, everything from looking into what happened with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan to President Biden's son Hunter and his laptop. Here is James Comer, the Republican congressman expected to head up the House Oversight Committee in a recent appearance on Fox News. We have spent trillions of dollars, despite the fact that there have been report after report of waste, fraud, and abuse, especially with all the COVID money. And then you take the laptop, which shows that there has been influence peddling on a scale that we've never seen in the United States of America. The Biden White House is counting on Republicans overreaching with these investigations and then the White House being able to say, what about inflation? I thought they ran on inflation. Hmm. Do you have a sense of whether the White House is going to cooperate with congressional Republicans on these issues you just mentioned? Uh, This week, the White House counsel sent letters to Congressman Comer, as well as Jim Jordan, uh, who's the Republican who will chair the Judiciary Committee. And both of them had made urgent requests for documents to administration officials. The White House letter said, in essence, you can call us back when you are actually in the majority. Ian Sams is a spokesman for the counsel's office. Unfortunately, they're focusing on political stunts. Uh, When you make threats of subpoenas while you're still in the minority, it suggests that Maybe you're more focused on getting on Fox News than on working together on the important issues facing the American people. So I would just say that the level of cooperation is probably going to depend a lot on the nature of the investigation in question. Thank you. That's NPR's White House correspondent, Tamara Keith. You're welcome. We turn now to Brazil, where New Year's Day is also Inauguration Day. This afternoon, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva takes the presidential oath of office. It will be the third non-consecutive term for the 77-year-old leftist who narrowly beat the far-right incumbent in October. Hundreds of thousands of people are gathering in the capital, Brasilia, and security is tight. We're joined now by NPR South American correspondent Carrie Kahn. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning, Emily. So this has just been a wild ride for Lula Carey, because three years ago he was sitting in prison, and today he's being sworn in again as president. So what's the mood like in the Capitol? Well, the incoming administration is putting on quite a party. They are ready to party on. They're calling this Lula Palooza. Along with the inauguration, there's a huge concert with some of Brazil's uh, most famous musicians. And as you said, hundreds of thousands are taking over this usually quiet capital. And you, um, I mentioned that security is really tight. What's that looking like in the capital today? 
It is. It's security is tight. Brazil is very polarized right now. The ousted incumbent Jair Bolsonaro is an ultra-right nationalist, and Lula is ushering in a major political shift in the country. Bolsonaro never conceded defeat, and his followers have been defiantly camping out since last October's election in front of army barracks around the country. They want the armed forces to intervene and overturn the election, and on Christmas Eve, one of them was actually arrested in an alleged um, bombing attempt. So according to police, he wanted to sow chaos and ahead of the inauguration. So security is tight right now. So as I'm listening to you describe all this, I, of course, have to think of the violence in our own capital on January 6, 2021. Mm-hmm. Are there concerns of similar violence today in Brazil at the inauguration there? There is, but officials, including Lula himself, are really trying to downplay that threat. They have a lot of police here from all over the state. Uh, the head of the electoral court even banned all guns, even for registered owners in the capital through Monday. Hmm. And you just mentioned Jair Bolsonaro. What about him? What has he said about the inauguration? Well, since losing, he's made very few public statements, and he's actually left the country. On Friday, he flew to Florida in a presidential plane. He will not be on hand to pass the ceremonial presidential sash to Lula. That is the tradition here. But but before leaving, Bolsonaro took to social media. He defended his legacy. He denounced violence, but he urged his supporters to keep up the fight against Lula. Does this mean that Bolsonaro never officially conceded defeat? Has he congratulated Lula? No, he did neither, and he continues to falsely say the election was stolen. His supporters believe that, and they too vow to fight on. Uh, Bolsonaro's party did very well in Congress, though, and will be the largest voting bloc. Um, And despite leaving the country, Bolsonaro says he will continue pushing for his right-wing policies. However, he could face criminal investigation, so it's unclear when he is actually going to return to Brazil. That's interesting. So it sounds like Lula is still going to have a strong and pretty vocal opposition for the next four years, right? What other challenges is he facing? Yes, he has a lot of challenges, uh, especially with such a large opposition to him in Congress. Uh, He's also pledged to stop Amazon deforestation, and that's going to be a major challenge. Over the last four years, Bolsonaro decimated enforcement and protection. Um, Lula also pledges to put the poor first, as he did during his first two terms back in the 2000s. But Brazil is facing a much different and more challenging economic situation than it did back then. So that's going to be a major challenge for him. That's NPR South American correspondent Carrie Kahn. Happy New Year's and thanks for joining us. Oh, Happy New Year to you. Thank you. The Tournament of Roses is the way Pasadena, California has greeted the New Year since 1890. The Rose Parade sets the stage for the Big Rose Bowl college football game. This year, it's Utah versus Penn State. There's marching bands, shenanigans, and of course, elaborate flower-covered floats that make their way down a route starting at Orange Grove Boulevard. The theme of this year's parade is turning the corner. It marks a return to normal of sorts after the parade was canceled in 2021 and 2022 because of pandemic restrictions. But there's one big exception to this return to normal. The parade has a never on Sunday policy. So tomorrow, January 2nd, is the big day, which gives busy float makers a few extra hours before the event they've anticipated all year long. It makes me like grin ear to ear. I'm super excited for it. 
That's Benny Cruz. He's a fifth-year mechanical engineering student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and came up with the university's float design. My original sketch concept was a large tree branch along the length of the float with a bunch of large mushrooms covering the float and then three main uh, snails across the length. The Cal Poly team calls their float Road to Reclamation. Even though this branch has fallen, we are reclaiming it with all this new life in the form of mushrooms and snails and uh, an inchworm and ladybugs. Benny Cruz is also construction chair, so he had to figure out how to make that sketch into a 55-foot float reality with moving parts. Right there at the front of the float, you see uh, one of our main snails with a very detailed pattern shell. And during parade, its head and eye stalks will be moving around. As you go to the very back of the float, we have our tallest element, which is like a 20-foot tall mushroom. And float construction goes way beyond design and decorations. Like, how do you get that giant mushroom under a bridge? If you want to see the parade and you wait by this bridge, you'll get to see this massive mushroom fold down about 60 degrees as we fit under this bridge and then rise back up. All that work comes with a big payoff. Cruz gets to drive the university's float. My viewport is about uh, maybe like a foot and a half wide and six inches tall. So it kind of feels like I'm driving a tank. Building a float like this is a team effort with 60 student leaders and hundreds of student volunteers. We spend so much time on these floats because we love what we do. And the fact that we get to show it off to so many people is really just icing on the cake. So if you watch the parade tomorrow, keep an eye out for the mushroom. Benny Cruz says he'll give you a wave. You're listening to NPR News. Thanks for listening to Weekend Edition Sunday here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Happy New Year. It is 818. And coming up, our conversation about this week's historic inauguration in Massachusetts with former Framingham Mayor Yvonne Spicer of the UMass Boston Center for Women in Politics and Public Policy. Also, you'll meet a figurative painter who was on the way up in the 1950s when abstract expressionism captured the attention of the art world, but he persevered, and at 99 years old, he paints every day. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. The suspect in the fatal stabbings of four University of Idaho students is reported to be planning to waive his extradition hearing. His defense attorney told several news outlets this weekend that his client is eager to be exonerated. The 28-year-old was arrested in eastern Pennsylvania last week. Anita Pointer has died. A family statement has been posted on the Pointer sisters' website. A cause of death is not clear, but there are reports that she had cancer. She was 74. And the matchup for the college football championship is set. TCU will play defending champion Georgia. Both teams advance to the January 9th title game after this weekend's semifinals. 
I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. On Florida's Gulf Coast, developers are buying up properties destroyed by Hurricane Ian last fall. In some cases, they're planning to build larger, more expensive homes in their place. NPR's Danielle Kay reports that could have ramifications for the area's character. The expansive sandy beaches in Fort Myers have for years attracted people from colder states like Beth and Ralph Sampson. They're from Michigan, but spend much of the year down here. It's just charming here. It's not like the, oh, the nightlife and the, I I think the carpet gets rolled up here at nine o'clock at night, you know. It's not fancy like some of Florida's other coastal areas. About a third of Lee County residents are low income or spend at least 40% of their income on rent. Beth and Ralph own a home in Fort Myers Beach. It's still standing, but in October, one month after Ian hit, their neighborhood was a mess, hollowed out remnants of homes up and down their block. Beth says many of her neighbors can't rebuild. One double lot has already sold, and we don't know to who or for how much. On Hercules, right? And the the street behind us. It's like, oh boy, that's fast. (laughs) She's worried about what could happen to the family-friendly fishing town. I'm afraid that a big condo or somebody's going to buy it for their home and we're going to lose all that beauty that we all shared. Brad Coza, who owns a real estate brokerage in southwest Florida, says new out-of-state investors from Wall Street hedge funds to major hotel chains are already looking at new investments in the region. It is a completely blank canvas in certain areas that were extremely devastated. Coza says his firm has already been involved in acquiring 39 properties since Hurricane Ian. One of his clients bought a damaged waterfront home in Cape Coral across the bridge from Fort Myers for $670,000. After renovations, Coza expects it to sell for almost $1 million. You're going to see values jump and you are seeing a lot of new players that are now in the area that would not have been in this area pre-storm. This, Coza says, is just plain market dynamics. Many homeowners didn't have flood insurance, so they can't rebuild, and that's an opportunity investors are seizing. Older houses, in general, are more affordable. And so when you wipe out an older housing stock, even just building new, period, is going to be more expensive. Michelle Meyer directs the Hazard Reduction and Recovery Center at Texas A&M University. She says it costs a lot to build new structures up to code to make them more resilient in the face of disasters. There is federal disaster recovery money to help homeowners rebuild. In the past, states have gotten hundreds of millions of dollars from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. But Meyer says it could take a year or two before that money is available. Until then, she says local officials can encourage homeowners not to sell out of desperation. And find a way to have them hold onto their property and rebuild their property and remain in the home. Meyer says cities can also use zoning regulations like zoning for single-family homes to help support low-income residents. 
these first two meetings, we've tried to gear up towards the policy discussion and getting things in place and moving towards these changes that take time. Jason Green, a zoning consultant for the town of Fort Myers Beach, spoke at the local planning agency's meeting in December. Green says he doesn't think zoning in the town will change much. There are some duplexes. There's a few triplexes and quads kind of worked in there over the years. But for the most part, you'll, you'll see that there are single family homes. But there are a lot of investors who will push for bigger developments. They were doing so even before Ian hit. Joanne Summer has been trying to stop one. Southwest Florida has a different flavor, you know, to it. And we really don't want to become another Miami. But money talks. Summer has lived near Fort Myers Beach for more than 50 years. She's president of the Ostego Bay Marine Science Center. I live near the commercial fishing docks and working waterfront. In 2020, Summer and her brother sued Lee County after it rezoned to allow a high-rise apartment complex across the street from her home. They won, but one month before Hurricane Ian, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his cabinet overturned that decision, allowing the project to move forward and paving the way for more density across Lee County's hurricane-prone areas. And now? We were kind of ground zero on Hurricane Ian. Summer says she's frustrated by efforts to develop the waterfront. The developers want to come in and take over our working waterfront and build condominiums. So many of our areas are being sold out. But she'll keep fighting to preserve the character of the town. Danielle Kay, NPR News, Fort Myers. The public health workforce has been strained by the COVID-19 pandemic and a wave of retirements is expected. NPR's Ping Huang reports on a new source of help, high schoolers learning to become community health workers. 18-year-old Batania Fasaha spent her whole summer taking online classes on chronic disease, mental health, and contact tracing. Like, I, I feel like people are like, oh my God, you wasted your summer, things like that. But like, I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed meeting up with everyone, going through all of that, the struggle, you know, doing the modules. It took 90 hours of a curriculum designed by the Morehouse School of Medicine, followed by an internship at a local health clinic. She practiced taking weight and blood pressure readings on her family. Now, on a Saturday morning in December, Vasaha is one of the first 14 high school students to graduate from the Youth Public Health Ambassador Program in Fairfax County, Virginia. The Fairfax County Health Department is training students to become community health workers. Edu Futuro, a local nonprofit, is helping. Director Jorge Figueredo says it takes minority students with an interest in medicine and it gives them a head start on a career path. At the end of the day is that day they successfully enroll in a college or a post-secondary institution where they will be able to get a degree in a health-related career. And then four years later, they get their first professional job. The program focuses on Hispanic, African-American, and African students from low-income families. That's because in Fairfax County, as in much of the country, these groups of people were hardest hit by COVID. Anthony Mingo from the County Health Department says one reason was not getting good information at the start of the pandemic. When there were already issues of mistrust that were historically and generationally based, and it just created a miserable stew of misinformation, as I call it. One way to address the mistrust is by training local teenagers as health influencers for their peers and for their families. And the new youth ambassadors are very excited about public health. 
Zaha says it was eye-opening to learn that not having healthy, affordable grocery stores close by can lead to high blood pressure and diabetes. You don't realize that these like things that build up within our community, like how we access our food, how we make income, we don't realize how much of the impact that makes to our mental health and our physical health. Nyla Benia, a 17-year-old junior, says she learned how the medical field has lost trust with some groups. But also it was talking about the history of like ethical considerations, which I really didn't think about. Like it was talking about the cancer cells from a patient that was used without their consent. And it just made me think how like minority groups were really taken advantage of for medical research. Benia thinks she might become a pediatrician to better serve Spanish-speaking kids and parents. Fasaha wants to work on HIV AIDS in Africa and especially Ethiopia, where her family's from. Both are among the first graduates in a pilot program that aims to train 90 students by next summer. It's just a small sliver and a Fairfax countywide project to boost health literacy and create a more diverse pipeline of public health workers. That larger project is funded with $3.8 million from the federal government. Mingo from the Fairfax County Health Department told the students that they have a long road ahead. The flame that was ignited in this program, carry it forth. Public health needs you. For now, in a sunny corner of a high school library, after some bleak pandemic years, everyone was glad to be part of a graduation celebrating teens getting into public health. So first, Nyla Bonilla. Betania Seha. Ping Huang, NPR News. I just got back from three months reporting in Taiwan, a place I've always loved visiting in part because they're a cultural powerhouse for producing Chinese language pop ballads. But a whole new generation of musicians is emerging who sing not in Chinese, but in languages native to Taiwan. Musicians like Abao, one of Taiwan's biggest pop stars. Abao is Paiwan, one of the island's 16 recognized indigenous groups, and she sings in Paiwan, in Austronesian language. It's genre-bending music that is challenging the boundaries of Taiwanese identity. In person, Abao is vibrant. We met for dinner recently in the recesses of Taiwan's National Theater. Our conversation was frequently punctuated by her belly laughs. <laughs> and the jingle of her jewelry. That love of life and curiosity is also evident in her music, which spans electronic dance hits, draws on gospel, and is also heavily shaped by R&B. Abao credits her love of mixing music styles to her ability to code switch among Taiwan's many ethnicities and languages. When she was seven, her parents moved her out of Taiwan's rural east to the southern city of Kaohsiung so she could be near better schools with Han Chinese people. This is Taiwan's main ethnic group. My parents' generation had a tough life. They had few opportunities, so they wanted me and my sister to get the same education as the Han Chinese and not just spend time with other indigenous people. 
but she'd often make weekend trips back to the Paiwan community to see her parents. I was always going between my tribal life and my city life, so I got very used to code switching. And I got used to mixing a lot of things together, and that influences my music. Just under 2.5% of Taiwanese are indigenous, part of the original Austronesian people who lived on the island long before Chinese settlers and various colonial governments came and went. It's really only in the last decade that Taiwan's now ethnically Han Chinese dominant society has begun to recognize indigenous culture. And the discrimination and stereotypes indigenous people face continued even after Taiwan became a democracy. We've all met not very nice people who ask why my skin is so dark or joke that my parents are alcoholics. So Abao used her skill for languages to her advantage. My father was the first person who pushed me to learn the Taiwan language because he feared we would be bullied and we wouldn't even understand. And during his job as a taxi driver, she'd sit in the front seat with him and listen in on him and his multilingual passengers. His taxi also had a radio, and I'd listen to all sorts of music. Music sung in Taiwanese, in the Hakka language, and Western music. I remember Abba was big then. Abba once sang Mandarin Chinese pop songs, but switched to writing in Paiwan after recording an album of traditional songs with her grandmother. And her music has let her rediscover and relearn the Paiwan language. Much of her songwriting process began with recording her long conversations with her mother, who died last year. People say my lyrics are like poems, but my mother and I would just chat and chat and suddenly get to a phrase and think, wow, that sentence is so funny, and that would become a lyric. That process was one of the inspirations behind one of Abao's biggest hits, called Mother Tongue, or Hinekeian in Paiwan. Mother Tongue is part of an album of the same name that won her Album of the Year and Best Indigenous Language Album at Taiwan's Golden Melody Awards, its top music accolade in 2020. Traditional music, when people think of music, they think of some elder pounding a drum. That's important too, but young indigenous people have their own way of living and their own community, and they want to be able to mix their culture with what they like. Music, she believes, is one of the most accessible ways to connect people in Taiwan. I want to slowly reduce the concept of what the other must be like. And Abao has gotten so big in Taiwan that when she gives a concert, her fans, no matter their age or ethnicity or mother tongue, they now sing the Paiwan lyrics right back at her. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Good morning and Happy New Year. I'm Sharon Browdy. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. This will be an historic week in Massachusetts. Governor-elect Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor-elect Kim Driscoll will be sworn into office on Thursday, along with the other constitutional officers. Five of the six statewide offices will be held by women. 
Yvonne Spicer is a lecturer on gender, leadership, and public policy at the UMass Boston Center for Women in Politics and Public Policy. She also was the first mayor of Framingham once it became a city. Massachusetts has long been known to be a progressive state and, you know, and, and to think, you know, me being the first African-American woman ever elected mayor in the state of Massachusetts. I mean, you know, and that was just, uh, you know, five years ago. So I think we're making progress, but, we, you know, certainly not fast enough. There's never been a Speaker of the House that has been female. I mean, it's wonderful to have my senator, Senator Spoka, as Senate president, but there's still room to grow. And when you think about the legislators, there's not as many women. I think there's 63 women out of 200 legislators. Women have long been left out of the, the political arena. And, and, you know, when you think about in this country, there are only 12 women in the governorship. And, uh, and when you think Maura Healy is representing on so many different fronts, and it, is, it speaks volumes about Massachusetts. In many ways, we can be very progressive in, in our thinking and our values and our ideas and our actions. And, and this election proved that to be true. Governor-elect Maura Healey is the first openly gay woman elected as governor in the country as well. How important do you think that is as well? When young men and women can see Maura Healey and say, yes, I am gay, I am a lesbian, I'm transgender, and this woman is the governor, yes, I can see myself represented. I also think, too, there's a, um, a message that she will carry in this administration that will be inclusive and also very, very welcoming of new and different ideas. How important is it to you that Andrea Campbell is the first black woman to serve as attorney general? I mean, I think back, I met her for the first time probably back in 2017 when I was running for office. And, uh, and I remember doing a show with her and, uh, and just saying, that, what an extraordinary young woman. And, you know, and following her career, and I see she's where she needs to be. Once again, representation matters. And her life experience itself uh, is a testament to how perseverance is exceptional for her. And and I think she's going to bring that light, that wisdom, that experience uh, to this office. Uh, And also, I think, once again, being that beacon of light for other children of color to say, yes, you can. Yes, you can do this. Do you feel that women campaign or govern any differently than men? Women work well together when everyone feels that they have something to bring to the table. And it's that part of that circle uh, of community, of connectivity, that women bring with them. And, and that's part of who we are in raising families and taking care of each other that will make a difference. Given the incoming shift in part of the power structure in Massachusetts, what do you foresee as some tangible changes that might occur in the state? I am really hoping that um, some of the real big issues that we have seen rear their ugly head, especially during the last two years, homelessness, that's a real big factor, housing insecurity. These are some real big issues that we, we've kind of put uh, some Band-Aids on and we've done some things and I'm happy about that. But I also feel that there's so much more that needs to be done. And we need to really tackle some, uh, some serious issues around mental wellness. This pandemic really has sent 
us into a bit of a tailspin. K through 12 education, yeah, we, we've talked about you know the social and emotional learning. We've talked about the learning losses. We've talked about students' trauma. All of that, all of that has affected many of us across the state. And we need to really take the lid off of some of these, these challenges because you know, you can't get to economic uh, wellness and health and, and closing the wealth gap and, and the achievement gap if people are not able to have their basic needs met, such as housing, food security, uh, to, uh, to making sure that, you know, that they can take care of their families and they're mentally well to do so. Those are the kinds of things that I, I think we need to really uh, take the veil off of and actually address head on in this state. Yvonne Spicer from the UMass Boston Center for Women in Politics and Public Policy. WBUR brings you live coverage of the inauguration this Thursday. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang, and what better way to ring in the new year than with a new puzzle? Joining us today is puzzle editor of the New York Times and Weekend Edition's puzzle master, Will Schwartz. Happy New Year, Will. Good morning, Emily. Happy New Year. Thank you. Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, I said name a prominent geographical location in the United States, change the fifth letter to an S, and the resulting string of letters from left to right will name a game, a mountain, and a popular website. What place is it? And the answer is Chesapeake Bay. Make that change. You get Chess, Peak, and eBay. Very clever. We're starting a new puzzle season off, right, with nearly a thousand correct submissions this week. And our lucky winner is Jim Rupke of Raffian, Virginia. Congratulations, Jim, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Hey, Happy New Year, Jim. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? Forty-some years since postcard day. (laughs) And what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, I'm semi-retired as a stonemason, and I help my wife's business of growing cut flowers and produce on our farmette in the Shenandoah Valley here in Virginia. That sounds lovely. All right, Jim, are you ready to play the puzzle? Um, facing the fire. Hopefully it won't be a few moments of infamy, but here we go. Will, why don't you take it away? All right, Jim and Emily. 
Every year around this time, I do a year-end new names in the news quiz, and here's how it works. I'll name some people you probably never heard of until 2022, but who made the news during the past 12 months. You tell me who they are. And this list was compiled with the help of Kathy Baker, who played a similar quiz in the past. Here's number one. We'll start easy-ish. Katanji Brown-Jackson. She's the new U.S. Supreme Court Justice. Bingo. Number two is Liz Truss, T-R-U-S-S, Liz Truss. Liz Truss is the new prime minister of Great of England, Great Britain. That's true, or was, I sh we should oh, say. Yeah. Uh, she was prime minister for less than two months, the shortest That's tenure large. in British history. Your next one is Carrie Lake, K-A-R-I, Carrie Lake. She ran for governor of Arizona. That's right. Challenged the results. Your next one is Georgia Maloney. That's G-I-O-R-G-I-A, Georgia Maloney. I'm drawing a blank. She's the uh, new prime minister of what country? Uh, would it be Peru? No. No? Um, I'll tell you. She's the uh, first female prime minister of Italy. Okay. Here's your next one, Cassidy Hutchinson. She was uh, worked for Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and testified to the uh, January 6th Congressional Committee. Excellent. You got that exactly right. Here's your next one, Karine Jean-Pierre. That's K-A-R-I-N-E, Karine Jean-Pierre. Yeah, right. Okay, she is the... Uh, Press secretary for President Biden? You got it, the new White House press secretary. Here's your last one, Josh Wardle, W-A-R-D-L-E, Josh Wardle. Going out with a bang here, thank you. Um, he, he created the Wordle puzzle. He created the <laughs> Wordle, which I play every day, and it sounds like you're a Wordle fan too. Nice job. Great job, Jim. I can tell you've been listening to NPR. How do you feel after that? I feel all right. I feel all right. Came through okay. Well, for playing our puzzle today, you're going to get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And one last question, Jim. What member station do you listen to? WMRA out of Harrisonburg, Virginia, and we're sustaining members. Wonderful. That's Jim Repke of Raffian, Virginia. Thank you for playing today. Thanks for having me and wishing you both a good new year. Thank you. Thank you. you. So, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, name a U.S. state capital for which the name of another well-known U.S. city is an antonym. And the second city has a population of more than 100,000. So, again, name a U.S. state capital, and there is another well-known U.S. city whose name means exactly the opposite of that state capital, and that other city has a population of more than 100,000. What cities are these? When you think you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, January 5th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air, like Jim today, with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Emily. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too.
If one of your New Year's resolutions is to read more books, but you don't know where to start, well, we've got some help for you. Andrew Limbong hosts NPR's Book of the Day podcast, and he's here with an early look at some new books coming out in 2023. Hey, Andrew. Happy New Year. Hey, Emily. Happy New Year. Okay, so hit me up with some book recommendations. What novels are people in the book world excited about this year? All right, so let's get some heavy hitters out of the way up top. Uh, Colson Whitehead, who's got two Pulitzers under his belt, one for the Underground Railroad and the other for his book Nickel Boys. He's got a new book coming out. Um, it's called Crook Manifesto. It takes place in Harlem in the 1970s, and it's about a retired criminal and furniture store owner Ray Carney, who, you know, for a couple of reasons, has to unretire from crime. Um, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because the book is actually a sequel to Whitehead's previous book, Harlem Shuffle. Like most of Whitehead's work, that book got a lot of praise when it came out, so there are some high expectations when this new one drops this summer. Um, and there's also a new book coming out by Rebecca Mackay. Uh, she's famous for her 2018 book, The Great Believers, which won a bunch of awards, and she was a finalist for the National Book Award. So this new one is super anticipated. It's titled, I Have Some Questions for You. Um, and <laughs> Mackay herself describes it as the, quote, the literary feminist boarding school murder mystery you didn't know you needed. <laughs> I need that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about, um, it's about a successful podcaster named Bodie Kane returning to her boarding school alma mater to teach a class um, and dig into this like decades old mystery of a murdered classmate and it just so happens that two of Bodhi's own students are doing this sort of like true crime serial style podcast about it and you know it, it's about memory and complicity and how we've evolved in our thinking about sexual assault so those are just some of the big name authors with books coming out. Hmm. And speaking of big names, I've got my ear to the ground, and I gather mm -hmm. there is a highly anticipated new book from Salman Rushdie that's supposed to come out as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. this will actually be Rushdie's first book since he was stabbed while on stage back in August. Um, it's called Victory City. It was announced well before the attack, which didn't seem to have any impact on the book's release schedule. And it's being promoted as like a return to Rushdie's magical realism roots, and it tells this epic story over the course of over 200 years. What about some nonfiction books? All right, so um, in 2016, sociology professor Matthew Desmond came out with his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Evicted, which I think it's fair to say it changed the way a lot of people looked at evictions in this country. You know, it showed how being evicted can make it impossible to ever get steady housing, which means it's hard to lock down a job or keep your kids in school. Now, Desmond's got a new book coming out called Poverty by America, and it's a like just as in-depth look into how the wealthy in our society knowingly exploit poor people and keep them in poverty. If you're in the mood for something, you know, like a little lighter, uh, Prince Harry's coming out with a memoir in just a few weeks titled Spare. And there's been a lot of like back and forth speculation about how detailed it'll get about the royal family. What? About younger listeners, anything for teens who might be listening to the show or for adults who love young adult fiction? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, there's actually this uh, debut YA novel coming out called Blood Debts by uh, Terry J. Benton Walker that's been getting some buzz. It's a fantasy book that takes place in current day New Orleans. And it's about these two teenage twins who are heirs to like a magical family. They've got to solve a mystery about who's coming for their family. It's the type of book that opens with like multiple family trees to just give you a sense of scope that this book is going for. Okay, what about you, Andrew? What are you most looking forward to? Okay, 
R.F. Kuang's novel Yellowface is the book I'm I'm really hyped about. Um, it's about these two rival up-and-coming writers, right? June Hayward and Athena Liu. And when Athena dies, June steals her manuscript, which is about Chinese laborers, and promotes it as her own, and like rebrands herself as like an ethnically ambiguous literary superstar. You know, it's supposed to be this really sharp critique at the publishing industry itself. Thank you. That was Andrew Limbong, host of NPR's Book of the Day podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Emily. In the 1950s, painter Jonah Kinnickstein was on the verge of making it big, but that didn't happen. Yet, unlike many aspiring artists who realize they cannot make a living doing what they love, Kinnickstein did not quit. He still paints every day at the age of 99. NPR's Matthew Sherman has his story. For a while, it seemed like Jonah Kinnigstein was going somewhere. He won a Fulbright, got into the Whitney Museum, and caught the attention of a prominent gallery owner. I went down with some photos, and she says, all right, we'll take you on for a while. That gallerist was Edith Halpert. She represented painters who become legends, like Jacob Lawrence, Ben Shahn, and Georgia O'Keeffe. She held famous American artists, so it really was a good place to be. Halpert was such an important part of the art world then that the Jewish Museum in New York organized an exhibit about her a few years ago. Rebecca Shaken was its curator. I can't imagine how he felt at the time. It must have been like winning the lottery. Once, Life magazine even profiled her, along with nine of her artists. Kinnigstein was one of them. So this is an article that ran in Life magazine in 1952. New crop of painting protégés. Except what happened next changed art history forever and derailed Kinnigstein's career, hopes, and dreams. In the years after World War II, figurative art, that modeled more or less on real life, coexisted with abstract art, like Jackson Pollock's drip paintings or Mark Rothko's color fields. But eventually, abstract art won the day. All kind of modes of art making that had seemed to work in the past, a kind of figurative mode of showing people in pain or in anguish. It didn't seem like it could really capture the sort of general sense of existential dread. Kinnigstein was a figurative painter. His subjects were rabbis, saints, circus barkers, often exaggerated and expressionistic, but mimicking real life. By 1960, he couldn't convince anyone to give him a show. The rejection stung. I mean, I made painting after painting. And uh, I always felt, you know, I was doing my best. To him, abstract painting took no talent, no skill, no ability to observe the world around you. That's, of course, a common complaint about modern art. Yeah, I saw a guy right in front of my eyes going from real, real painting to, you know, like he laid the painting down on a floor and he started to splash around. I couldn't talk to that guy. I really couldn't talk to him. Kinnickstein married, had two kids, and made his living doing lithographs and commercial art. In 1961, he designed Bloomingdale's first ever collectible shopping bag, and he never stopped painting. His studio on the third floor of his house in Brooklyn has got hundreds of his paintings in it. They're of cabarets, dance halls, churches, or Jewish shtetls. The figures look grotesque, emaciated, or like they're having fun at the expense of someone else. This is Coney Island. I was born in Coney Island. 
It's a painting of a funhouse, a devil standing above the entrance with a sign. Hellhole. Then there's an impressionistic one of St. Anthony with a long beard and tattered clothing. He was tempted by women, you know, and uh, he was a religious guy. Kinnickstein also draws cartoons. They look like something out of a 19th century political magazine, except his lampooned the art establishment that promoted abstract painting. Here's the original engraving. One of them is based on a famous Rembrandt, The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp, except the cadaver on the bed is labeled figurative painting, and the men around him, cutting him up, are gallery dealers, critics, curators, and auction houses. All these guys are making fun of them. They're all wearing funny hats. A few times, Kinnickstein took these cartoons to New York's gallery district, Soho, and pasted them onto building walls and lampposts. Getting into arguments with people who would come by, then people taking them off, wanting him to sign them. That's Eileen, his second wife. I was in the getaway car, you know. <laughs> I drove the getaway car. Kinnickstein's long since reconciled himself to not being popular. Oh, I can't change anybody's mind. No. And recently, he's gotten a little recognition. Fantagraphics, arguably the most important art comics publisher in the U.S., came out with a collection of his cartoons in 2014. Gary Groth knew he wanted to publish them the day he opened Kinnickstein's submission. They were clearly not drawn by a young person because they displayed a level of craft. They were also extraordinarily well drawn. And then I looked at the content and every single one of them was a ferocious attack on abstract expressionism. Next, Roth turned his attention to Kinnickstein's paintings. I thought he was at least as good a painter as he was an editorial cartoonist. And painting was, was actually his first love. That book, Unrepentant Artist, The Paintings of Jonah Kinnickstein, appeared this summer. Abstract expressionism is long since gone, followed by pop art, minimalism, postmodernism, now, figurative painting is sort of coming back, but that's not why Kinnickstein's doing it. I don't paint for anybody, you know? I know what I want. In June, Kinnickstein will turn 100. Matthew Sherman, NPR News, New York. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing the data behind American diversity on its new podcast season, Race and Research, available at pewtrusts.org NPR. And from the NPR Wine Club, bringing wines from around the world to members with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet. Available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning and Happy New Year. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. Stay informed about a wide range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app whenever 
wherever. It's 53 degrees in Boston with some sunshine today and temperatures in the mid-50s. Lows overnight dropping to the mid-30s and then mild again tomorrow, mostly sunny. Monday's highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. You know all those different best if used by dates at grocery stores? Best buy, use by, sell by, expires on. Turns out food dates don't have a whole lot to do with food safety. It's like, what are you supposed to do with that information as a consumer? On the next Planet Money, the history behind best buy, use by dates and how to make sense of them. And on How I Built This, we meet the founder of the personal finance site, The Financial Diet. That's on the next Planet Money and How I Built This from NPR. Today at 3 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Emily Fang. In this hour, we explore where the U.S.'s relationship with China is going and ask big questions like, can the two countries coexist? And coming up, the Philippines is ready to party. Holiday merrymaking returns after a two-year pandemic hiatus. Plus, we have the year in space where humanity actually did quite well. And an NPR culture reporter finds inner peace exploring one of the largest art pieces in the world. First, the news. It's New Year's Day, Sunday, January 1st, 2023. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Three New York City police officers are expected to fully recover after they were attacked last night outside Times Square, where partygoers were celebrating the new year. Police Commissioner Kishan Sewell says the attack happened about eight blocks from Times Square. Unprovoked, a 19-year-old male approached an officer and attempted to strike him over the head with a machete. The male then struck two additional officers in the head with the machete. Police say one of the officers shot the suspect in the shoulder. He is expected to survive. The suspect in the fatal stabbings of four University of Idaho students is reported to be planning to waive his extradition hearing. His defense attorney told several news outlets this weekend that his client is eager to be exonerated. The 28-year-old was arrested in eastern Pennsylvania last week. His extradition hearing is scheduled for Tuesday. 27 states and the District of Columbia will raise their minimum wages in 2023, according to National Employment Law Project. NPR's Aura Benchoff reports most of these increases kick off with the new year. Minimum wages will rise in the new year from Alaska to Virginia. In some states, the increases are pegged to inflation. In others, they're part of a years-long initiative to gradually boost base wages to $15 an hour. Nebraska is the latest state to commit to hitting that benchmark by 2026. Voters there approved the increase in November's election. But in 20 states, there's a different story. They use the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. That hasn't changed since 2009. Since then, the real value of that wage has slid by 27% due to inflation. 
That's according to an analysis by the Economic Policy Institute. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. There have been more Russian attacks on Kyiv and other parts of Ukraine. The strikes came just hours into the new year and follow a barrage of missile attacks yesterday. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Ukrainians will not forgive Russia. He spoke after Vladimir Putin delivered a New Year address. Brazilians are celebrating the new year and a new president today, Inauguration Day in Brazil. And as NPR's Kerry Khan reports, a mood in the Brazilian capital is festive but cautious. More than a dozen heads of states and hundreds of thousands are expected on hand to celebrate Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva taking the oath of office. Lula, one of Latin America's best-known leftists, narrowly defeated the incumbent far-right nationalist Jair Bolsonaro last October. Bolsonaro never conceded defeat and has claimed without proof the election was stolen. Security in the capital is tight. Officials thwarted a bomb plot by one supporter Christmas Eve. Bolsonaro left the country Friday for Florida, he will not pass the presidential sash to Lula, as has been the custom of outgoing presidents since Brazil returned to democracy in the 1980s. Carrie Kahn, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The minimum wage is now $15 an hour in Massachusetts, up from $14.25 last year. WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports it is the last in a series of annual wage hikes scheduled for the state. Lawmakers struck a deal five years ago to gradually increase the minimum wage to $15. But Mass Budget and Policy Center Policy Director Phineas Baxendall says the latest 75-cent increase is not enough. That's a 5% increase over the 2022 minimum. And inflation's been running higher than that which means that the minimum wage doesn't fully make up for the loss in buying power that happened from inflation. Still, the state's minimum wage is now among the highest in the U.S., along with places like Washington State, California, and Washington, D.C. The federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. More than 100 people are expected to celebrate the new year by jumping into Provincetown Harbor. WBUR Stevie Chapman says the P-Town Polar Plunge is for a good cause. There can be a lot of anticipation in the moments before taking the plunge. Okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Brian Laguerre jumps into the Cape's cold waters each year. I hate the cold, (laughs) so that's always a conundrum right there. But it's worth it. The event helps fund his research into white sharks at the Center for Coastal Studies. If you plan to join him, he has some advice. First, wear shoes to protect your feet from oyster shells and the cold sand. The other part is, you know, if you could wear a smaller bathing suit or something like that, it allows you to change quicker. (laughs) This year, Laguerre hopes to raise $10,000. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. If you are not ready to take the polar plunge but do want to start the new year outdoors, then here's an option. The state is hosting 13 guided hikes today. The Department of Conservation and Recreation website has details on first-day hikes from Greater Boston to the Berkshires. It's 53 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, and temperatures in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang, filling in for Aisha Roscoe. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the first day of the new year. I normally cover China for NPR, and I wanted to start the new year with a conversation about its relationship with the U.S. It's a relationship that has not gone well in the last few years, whether because of trade wars or sparring over technology, and that's prompted a crucial foreign policy debate on whether the U.S. and China can coexist together. And if so, how? We're joined now by Jessica Chen Weiss, professor of government at Cornell University and a former senior policy advisor to the U.S. State Department. We also have Nadia Shadlow, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a former U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much. Thanks, Emily. Jessica, we hear China now repeatedly referred to as a threat. And at the same time, the Biden White House says it still seeks cooperation with China on several fronts like climate change, for example. Do you feel like this approach is working? Well, look, I think that on the present trajectory, we are headed toward an increasingly confrontational relationship that is veering toward an avoidable crisis. And I worry that uh, without greater uh, efforts to put a floor under the relationship, as the Biden administration, I think, is interested in doing, uh, we are headed in a direction that really we aren't collectively prepared for and that will come at great expense to our own national interests. It will come at an expense to the citizens and the kind of the vitality of our democracy and our economy. What would that floor look like? I mean, how can how do two quite ideologically different states find a way forward that is not purely adversarial? Well, first of all, I think that there are ways that in the near term that both sides could take reciprocal steps back from the brink in ways that wouldn't fundamentally uh, require a compromise or sacrifice of our core Uh, kind of security uh, interests um, and our values. That basically requires, I think, um, for example, in the South China Sea or in the Taiwan Strait or around Taiwan, finding ways to lower the temperature, but that don't ultimately sacrifice our efforts to bolster the kind of long-term defense and deterrence of potential military conflict. Now, I think that under Xi, Certainly, the Chinese Communist Party has become much more aggressive in its tactics to defend its legitimacy and interests, but he doesn't seek military conflict. There's very little uh, research to support that. And so, if anything, uh, we see Xi Jinping acknowledging that China is still weaker than the United States and its modernization drive still remains dependent on access to international technology uh, and capital. This desire for stability doesn't mean that uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party is going to, uh, you know, accept what they see as provocations or humiliations. Nadia, you worked under the Trump administration and starting then, that's when we started to see the U.S. take a more confrontational stance on China that Jessica is referring, whether it was a trade war or pretty significant sanctions on Chinese technology companies. What do you think might need to be refined? And, and what do you think so far about President Biden's approach to China that Jessica has been describing? I would question the assumption or phrase it slightly differently. Um, What we did in the previous administration was take a more realistic approach to China, one which ensured that we were going to protect American interests and not continue to be disadvantaged by the economic and trade practices by the CCP. Fundamentally, what we're discussing here, almost three approaches. One is an engagement approach that China will become more like the United States. It will open up. 
a sort of globalist perspective that we are all converging and all want the same sort of life, the same type of liberal international order. Second, there's kind of an entanglement approach. We're almost too entangled to drive ourselves apart, right? We're almost too entangled to compete because entanglement means that we're interlinked, right? Our economies are intertwined. And, and in many senses, they are, right? They're very, very intertwined. And that's part of the problem we're facing. And then I think third, there's what I would call a more maybe a, a realistic approach, a sense that China will not change, that there's a certain determinism, that China has its own goals, and it stated those goals. They see this as an ideological long-term conflict where socialism and capitalism are not necessarily compatible. So I think it depends, some of your answers to the, some, some policy choices here and the policy choices you make will actually be linked to the, some of those assumptions. And which framework do you feel like predominates now in the U.S.? I think the Biden administration itself is, is divided on this. Uh, so I think the language on climate and the Biden administration strategy and the view that we could and must cooperate with China because climate is an existential threat is probably more aligned with the entanglement view, a little bit of the engagement view, because it's based on the assumption that China wants the same things as us in the climate domain, too. Well, then I'm curious what you two make of the meeting that happened between President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping in November in Indonesia on the sidelines of G20. I was there covering the meeting, and I was just astonished that after the friction of the last couple of years, you saw these two men smiling and shaking hands with each other and sitting down for a pretty substantial discussion. So just quickly, how optimistic are you both that there might be a different or even more relaxed relationship between the U.S. and China going forward? Well, I'll say that I don't expect the relationship to become friendly or relaxed anytime soon. What I see is two you know, very pragmatic leaders recognizing that a short-term crisis or a war is in neither of their interests. Both have. And so in the near term, I think a more stable relationship benefits both. And there are um, important issues on which it would be beneficial um, for the two sides to be able to coordinate, if not cooperate. I agree with, with Jessica that I don't think the friendly tone of the summit necessarily means something substantially different from what we've seen, but I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Again, I, uh, I think stability is very important. Communication between leaders is very important. But in the end, the United States needs to be alert to the realities of what China wants to achieve. And so this is where I think we see a difference. China is seeking and has sought and has done a fair job of reshaping the international system in ways that advantage its own domestic political situation. So I do think we need actually this period of competition to ensure uh, that U.S. interests uh, well into the future are protected. I just don't see China's long-term interests um, aligned uh, with the U.S. In a, in a fundamental way. That's Nadia Shadlow, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and Jessica Chen Weiss, professor of government at Cornell University. Thanks to both of you for speaking to us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. I recently made a reporting trip to Taiwan, where I was struck by how attitudes there are hardening towards the island's much larger neighbor, China. That's led to a public debate over some basic assumptions underpinning Taiwan's relationship with China and the U.S. I tried to understand this shift and its potentially life or death implications. One of the people I spoke to about this was Taiwanese activist and social worker Li Mingzhe. 
He survived five years in a Chinese prison. He says through resistance, by rallying support from the outside, and from his wife. She decided to carve a message of support on her own arms, so that all she had to do was raise her hands for me to see it at my trial. She had tattooed, I am proud of you, on her forearms. This was the one thing the Chinese Communist Party could not take away. In April, Li was released, a free man, and his story has resonated across Taiwan, sparking a fierce discussion on what Taiwan can do to deter China. Allies like this need to provide clear signal to the decision maker, the only one, Xi Jinping. This is Taiwanese lawmaker Wang Dingyu. He's on the island's Foreign Affairs and National Defense Committee and is a member of the ruling party. He's also been sanctioned by China. If you launch a military action toward Taiwan or India or South China Sea or Japan, we will fight. That red line maybe can postpone or deter the war itself. In other words, Wang wants to deter China. But historically, analysts feared an explicit U.S. defense commitment would provoke China into invading Taiwan. That's why the U.S. has an official policy of strategic ambiguity. The U.S. will help Taiwan with defense, but it won't commit to sending soldiers itself. It's an idea that's kept peace in the region for more than 40 years. But support for this deliberate lack of clarity is wavering. President Biden has repeatedly made comments this year hinting that the U.S. might actually defend the island. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. The White House quickly clarified its policy of strategic ambiguity has not changed. But Biden's comment set off a debate in Taiwan about whether ditching ambiguity is helpful or reckless. And there is unending disagreement about which is correct. This is Lev Nachman. He's a political scientist at National Jinju University in Taipei. He notes it's not just Li Mingzhou's experience, but China's broader autocratic behavior that's driving the Taiwanese further away. And collectively, these things have kind of I would say, led civil society to feel much more strongly about the idea of defending Taiwanese sovereignty. But taking a more aggressive stance is a huge gamble, and the survival of Taiwan may hang in the balance. I think for some people, they see it as high risk, high reward, where if they do declare strategic clarity and there is no conflict, then that is an equivalent of calling part of China's bluff. The other side says, yes, it's high risk, meaning that if you do declare strategic clarity and it leads to conflict, then that is in part our doing. The problem is, the U.S. and China don't really know what the other country is planning. And that means two superpowers are facing each other down in a game of deterrence with Taiwan's fate at stake, and with only assumptions about the other's intentions. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Happy New Year. It is 918 and coming up on Weekend Edition Sunday, you'll hear about a colossal art installation in the Nevada desert. You'll also get another batch of book recommendations, this time memoirs that and much more ahead on Weekend Edition. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. Coming to WBUR City Space, January 25th, journalist and historian Dart Adams discusses his book, Instead We Became Evil, about the life of Danish rapper Sliman. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 53 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, and temperatures staying in the mid-50s. Overnight lows dropping to the mid-30s, then mostly sunny tomorrow with highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. The suspect in the killings of four University of Idaho students is expected to waive extradition. The suspect's lawyer told several news outlets this weekend that 28-year-old Brian Koberger is eager to be exonerated. He's being held in Pennsylvania, where he was arrested last week. The music world has lost another Pointer sister. A statement on the Grammy-winning group's website says Anita Pointer has died. She was 74. And three New York City police officers are recovering after being attacked by a 19-year-old man with a machete last night. Authorities say two of the officers were struck in the head before an officer shot the suspect in the shoulder. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. 2022 was a tough year here on Earth, but in space, things actually went pretty well for us. Joining me to discuss the year from beyond our little blue planet and what's to come in 2023 is NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hi, Emily. So space is vast. Where do you want to start your look back for the year? Well, why don't we start our look back with a telescope that's designed to look actually back at the start of the universe. It's called the James Webb Space Telescope. It's this $10 billion project. It took decades to develop. And it's an engineering marvel. It traveled a million miles from Earth and then kind of unfolded in this like origami-style way. NASA actually calculated there were 344 ways it could fail, but it didn't. Everything went fine. So we ended up with some spectacular views of space, including um, some of the earliest galaxies in the universe over 13 billion years ago. So the thinking is this could really revolutionize our understanding of the early universe and even the, the Big Bang. That's incredible. And then closer to Earth, there was a mission to deflect an asteroid that we also pulled off, right? Yeah, yeah, this was pretty cool. It was uh, known as DART for short. And basically the goal was to smash a spacecraft about the size of a golf cart into an asteroid roughly the size of the Great Pyramid of Giza. So in September, they lined everything up and they took their best shot and it worked. They actually did manage to move this asteroid a little bit. In fact, they moved it a bit more than they'd sort of hoped they would. 
So we're safe. We're safe from asteroids? The truth is this is a proof of principle. And in fact, NASA needs to find these potential Earth-destroying asteroids. And that's one of the things they want to do next is build a, a telescope to look for asteroids that might cross Earth's path. All right. So all the missions you described were uncrewed. I'm wondering how things went for humans that managed to make it off Earth. Chinese astronauts had a actually a pretty big year in space. Um, they managed to expand their space station and started regular crew rotations, which is a fairly big deal for them. And after years of delays, NASA finally launched a capsule that's designed to take humans back to the moon. Now, this didn't have people on it this time, but the trip went really well. And the hope is the next mission uh, this capsule does will have humans on board. You know, it wasn't all smooth sailing for humans off the planet, particularly on the International Space Station, which is a joint U.S.-Russia project. There were a lot of tensions, of course, because of the war in Ukraine. And there were also some, some technical problems, including the recent unexpected venting of a bunch of coolant from a Russian space capsule. So it was a, a tough year on the space station, but otherwise, humans did all right. And what do we have to look forward to in 2023? So we're going to get more pictures from the Webb Telescope filling up our feeds. Um, that should be great. And uh, we have a bunch of potential developments in commercial spaceflight. So we might have the first commercial spacewalk um, from a SpaceX capsule. That's Elon Musk's company. And SpaceX might also launch this massive new rocket called a Starship that is maybe the sort of architecture they'll use to one day try and reach Mars. And then Boeing, not to be uh, outdone, is going to try and launch crew aboard its first commercial vehicle as well. So there will be a lot of astronauts going into space aboard a commercial spacecraft next year, and that's something to look forward to. Very exciting. That's NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Like many places around the globe, life in the Philippines was upended by the pandemic. It left people locked down and isolated. But this winter, seasonal merrymaking is returning in a big way. NPR's Julie McCarthy reports on how Filipinos marked this change and are looking with hope to the new year. The holiday season has been all the sweeter this year as Filipinos revived traditions they have not seen since December 2019. Amid resplendent trimmings, the Manila Symphony Orchestra helped the Peninsula Hotel relaunch its marquee holiday program. The Broadway tunes and roof-raising carols seem to say, as the MC did, that this Yuletide tradition off the calendar of the past two seasons is back big time. Having choirs back in action has been cathartic, says Jonathan Velasco. He conducts the Ateneo Chamber Singers, composed of alumni and friends of Ateneo de Manila University. This is a country known for its choirs. We're known for our voices, and suddenly we were silenced by the uh, pandemic. So with no masks in the concert, it's really, really something. The pandemic had consigned his internationally acclaimed ensemble to virtual arrangements that Velasco said were tedious. Finally, face-to-face -face rehearsals resumed, and performing their last concert of 2022, these amateur singers sounded for all the world like professionals.
sacred music is their specialty. Velasco looks to 2023 as a time of creativity unleashed. He says Filipino concert goers defy any talk of recession and are flocking to box offices. I'm talking tickets sold out. 3,000 seater and 2,000 plus seater concert halls sold out. So that's how it looks like. Tenor John Mojica is a founding member of the Ateneo Chamber Singers. He says the pandemic tested and matured him, and that performing before an audience left him humbled and grateful. I'm getting goosebumps right now just talking about it because just performing on stage, being with people, blending with another person, in person, experiencing it again makes you appreciate all of those things even more. We're still alive, we're enjoying life, we're here together. The head of corporate sales for Philippine Airlines, Mojica and his family were felled by COVID. As 2023 kicks off, he is still guarded, but he feels his zest for life returning and compares today to 100 years ago. That's why the Roaring Twenties were the Roaring Twenties, because it was after a pandemic as well, and everybody's just excited to party. So I'm excited for the Roaring Twenties. I'm recovering, parang sticking baby steps, but you know, I'm extremely excited about 2023. For 20-year-old Angelica Australia, the new year is not about returning to pre-pandemic normality as much as it is a new beginning. COVID knocked the nation off course and sent her on a detour far from her original plan. When her university shuttered the classrooms, she joined millions of students in the global experiment of virtual learning. It is too hard for me to learn in an online class. And also, I got bored. I like socializing, and I also preferred to have a face-to-face -face class. So she quit, and now works as a call center agent, a job she says helps her family make ends meet, and where she's vastly improved her English. But Australia's desire to be an educator still burns in her. She's eager to resume her education in the coming months, this time in a classroom. She says when she sees her former classmates on social media, graduated and working in their chosen fields, she feels left behind. Yeah, that's why I'm a bit jealous. That's why I have already to continue my study because that's my dream and also that's what I want. Her university classrooms are finally open again. And this young Filipina with a passion to teach school children is returning, hoping to move a step closer to her dream. I just feel excited. Because of all the things that will happen, she says, in 2023. Julie McCarthy, NPR News. A lot of us take stock of our lives on New Year's Day. And a lot of us are like, nah, I'm good. I want to hear about someone else's life. Well, NPR's Books We Love has reviews from our staff for biographies and memoirs released last year. Here are just a few. I'm Candace Lim. I'm a producer for Pop Culture Happy Hour. And the book I'm recommending today is The World's Worst Assistant by Sona Mofsessian. 
If you are a fan of Conan O'Brien, you know his right-hand person, Sodom Obsessian. She has been his assistant for years. She's the co-host of his podcast, but she has always been a star. Her extremely funny memoir starts with her childhood growing up in Southern California, and it travels through the highs and lows of her very comedy-adjacent career. Her observations are so spunky and sweet, and they're really undercut with this very incisive humor that made me laugh out loud so many times. And I think Sona does a really good job of writing with a lot of honesty, relatability, humility, and altogether she is just so lovable, and this was a book I could not get enough of. Hi, I'm Eric Deggins, NPR's TV critic, and I wrote about Scenes from My Life, a memoir by the actor Michael K. Williams working with writer John Sternfeld. He specialized in playing black male characters that subverted the ideas that we normally have about black masculinity. So he played um, a black gay male robber of drug dealers in The Wire, and he played a closeted black man in Lovecraft Country who traveled back in time to the Tulsa race massacre to relive a moment with a lover that he was always ashamed about. But in the book, he talks a lot about struggling with addiction. And what makes the book especially poignant is that Michael died of a drug overdose about five months before the manuscript was supposed to be due. And you read it, you read his optimism about life and about overcoming his background and living the life he was living. And there's an extra poignancy because you know that his story ends differently than perhaps he would have imagined. I'm Karen Grigsby Bates, and I'm the senior correspondent for Code Switch, NPR's podcast on race, identity, and culture. The book I chose is Solito by Javier Zamora. Solito, Spanish for alone, is the memoir of Javier's 3,000-mile journey in 1999 from his home in El Salvador to join his parents who've been living in the U.S. for several years. They finally saved enough to pay a coyote, a smuggler, to bring Javi from his small village where he lives with his loving, extended family to reunite with them in the western U.S. Javi is nine and alone. He is solito, but along the way, he's aided by adults who watch over and guide him, sometimes at significant personal cost. Solito is written from the perspective of Javi's nine-year-old self, so the language is a child's, simple, direct, even poetic. No matter how you feel about immigration, this wrenching, gorgeously told story is a must. My name is Isabella Gomez Sarmiento. I'm a producer with The Culture Desk and NPR's Book of the Day podcast. My recommendation for this year's books we love is The Man Who Could Move Clouds, which is a memoir by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. So partially it's a story about how Rojas Contreras lost her memory in a bike accident in her 20s, except there's this weird coincidence that her mom also lost her memory when she was a kid. And both of these accidents seem to open up the author and her mother to receiving her grandfather Nono's gifts. He is the man who can move clouds. He was a Colombian curandero with secret powers. The book jumps across time and across generations to tell all of these stories, but also about the history of colonialism and of spiritual magic. 
And then Rojas Contreras and her mother feel this urge to return to Colombia and take care of the late Nono's unfinished business. I mean, it's such a rich and compelling story about gender, memory, and culture that it just, it almost doesn't feel real, except every bit of it is. You heard about The Man Who Could Move Clouds, Salido, Scenes From My Life, and The World's Worst Assistant. For more great suggestions, check out NPR's books we love at npr.org slash bestbooks. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. In the 1960s, fiberglass was a boon to the boating industry. It was cheap and durable. But fiberglass has a limited lifespan and is expensive to dispose of properly. That's led many boat owners across the country to abandon their aging vessels. From member station WVTF, Sandy Hausman reports on one man who's trying to pick up all that litter. Mike Provost has always loved the water. He joined the Navy after high school and served for 21 years. These days, you'll find him cruising the Lynn Haven, a river near his home in Virginia Beach. He motors past a state park where he likes to swim with his kids. That's where, just over a year ago, he spotted an abandoned boat. On board, he found fuel, quarts of oil, and other toxic chemicals. So I called 30 different offices. No one had the funding or approval to do anything about it. And I was explicitly told that if I personally didn't take care of it, no one would. So he started a nonprofit to deconstruct derelict vessels and take them to landfills. His largest job was here in Norfolk Harbor, a twin-masted sailboat stuck in the mud. Provost needed a crew of six, a barge, and crane to dismantle it. The bill, paid by donors, was $28,000. It is illegal for people to dump their boats in state waters, but the law is rarely enforced. And back on his boat, Provost says some people escape responsibility by selling their old boat for a song or giving it away. If I can sell my 1985 40-foot boat for $100, that's going to save me thousands of dollars in having to dispose of it. Cicadas sing at a pristine marsh on Virginia's coast, where Jim Deppie complains that abandoned boats pollute the water and the views. He's been tracking the problem for a local environmental group, Lynn Haven River Now, for more than a decade and has watched as boats piled up. In southern Virginia Beach on the North Landing River, there's a derelict boat graveyard where people have just rubbed off all the identification marks off the boat and pulled them up into the marsh and sunk them. As boats degrade, tiny bits of plastic get into the water, into fish, and into people or animals that consume the fish. Officials in Virginia know of at least 230 derelict vessels, but with a quarter of a million registered boats in the state, they fear many more could be out there. Abandoned boats are found in every coastal state and in lakes and rivers. Nancy Wallace with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says there's no market for recycled fiberglass. There are some really great pilot studies that are going on right now looking at recycling of fiberglass in the manufacturing of concrete, which is very promising and shown to be successful, but it is logistically challenging and expensive. The U.S. Coast Guard sometimes moves boats that pose a navigational hazard, and some states have programs to remove them before they become a pricey and dangerous mess. 
In Florida, for example, NOAA's Nancy Wallace says hundreds of agents inspect boats and issue warnings and citations. If they start to notice that a vessel may become abandoned, they'll try to work with the owners to get that vessel out before it becomes a problem. Other states help owners to dispose of old boats for free or charge recreational boaters a fee to help fund removal. That money will likely be needed in the years to come since boat sales soared during the pandemic. For NPR News, I'm Sandy Hausman in Virginia Beach. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Workers earning the minimum wage in Massachusetts will now get more in their paychecks. Today, the state's minimum wage increases to $15 an hour. That's up from $14.25. It's the final boost as part of a law approved five years ago. Massachusetts now has one of the highest minimum wages in the country. The federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. A new surtax on the state's highest earners takes effect today. In November, voters approved a measure that adds a 4% surtax above the state's flat tax of 5% for the portion of annual household income exceeding $1 million. In sports, at Gillette this afternoon, the Patriots play the Miami Dolphins. If the Pats lose, then their playoff hopes are over. Tonight, the Celtics face the Nuggets in Denver. It's 53 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, and temperature staying in the mid-50s. Overnight lows dropping to the mid-30s. Then mild tomorrow, mostly sunny, and highs in the low 50s. On Tuesday, a chance of some rain with highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, now airing a new season on the intersection of race and research on Pew's podcast, After the Fact, available at pewtrusts.org NPR and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. One of the largest artworks in the world recently opened to the public. It's called City and is located in a remote part of the Nevada desert. The artist Michael Heiser worked on it for more than five decades. NPR's Chloe Veltman went to see it and had a transformative experience. Most people who visit Michael Heiser's city start out in Las Vegas.
So it's quite a shock after a three-hour drive north to be in the middle of the baking Nevada desert with no one but myself to talk to. I can't see another soul. My cell phone doesn't work. I have eh, not that much water left and, I don't know, a third of a bag of goldfish. I'm completely alone. It feels really nice. Heiser started work on City in 1970. The artist built his immense art installation out of local rock and dirt. It's more than one and a half miles long by half a mile wide and consists of clusters of low-slung, gravel-covered mounds, as well as imposing sculptures made of smooth concrete and rough stones, separated by a network of rocky runways and winding, empty streets. Well, this is an interesting view. I can see these amazing jagged shapes to my left. And on my right, it's all curves. Some parts of city look like they've been there forever. These leaning structures, they look like gravestones in a very ancient cemetery, all misshapen. But there are also concrete curbs like you'd find on any modern city street and futuristic looking geometric sculptures. It's like a pre-Columbian Mayan settlement, a highway interchange in Las Vegas and the desert planet Tatooine from Star Wars all rolled into one. I kind of feel like I'm on the far side of the moon over here. City isn't like any other place I've ever been to in my life. How can something that is so barren be so beautiful? But it's also unforgiving. My trudging is getting slower because I'm getting tired. Feels like I've been walking for days. Only up to six people are allowed to visit the installation at once. The day I'm there, it's just me. There's no welcome centre, no restrooms, no shade from the relentless desert sun. There isn't so much as a chair or a bench to rest on. I'm going to sit right here on the gravel. After a couple of hours of wandering about this eerie metropolis, things I normally wouldn't notice start to draw my attention. Who knew the desert had so many colours? White and grey and red and green and blue and black. My breathing slows. I lose track of time. At a certain point, I also start to lose my mind. Hello? Hello? Ooh, nice echo here. Michael Heiser was part of a wave of iconoclastic, mostly young white men who turned their backs on the traditional gallery scene in the late 1960s and 70s. Instead, Heiser used the wilderness of the American West as canvas and paint. He became known for creating remote artworks that were so huge they looked like they'd been put there by superhuman forces. He also refused to explain himself. No, I'm not big on talking about art. That's the artist speaking with NPR a decade ago. Today, he's nearly 80 years old. His health isn't great. He's not doing much press. So I take advantage of the long drive to City to get the skinny on Heiser and his installation from a man who knows them both pretty well. I mean, Mike Heiser does not come for the opening party. He comes to 
make the work and push definitions of what art is. Since the mid-1990s, Los Angeles County Museum of Art director Michael Govan has been helping Heiser get City, 50 years and $40 million in the making, ready for the public. It was not the easiest thing to convince people to give money to move earth in the desert with no completion date <laughs> and simply an artist's vision. Photography is forbidden at City, and Govan says the artwork doesn't even photograph well, even by drone. Audiences can only engage with the installation by being fully immersed in it. I think the world's catching up to that idea of experience that Mike Heiser was already interested in you know, long ago. City really has little in common with the immersive virtual reality installations or Instagrammable video shows dedicated to the likes of Vincent van Gogh and Frida Kahlo that are so ubiquitous today. There's nothing insta about Heiser's masterwork. Being there, even getting there takes commitment. And that's the point. The sun has almost disappeared behind the desert mountains by the time I realise I have to go. I'm parched and hungry and covered in dust. It's getting cold and my feet ache. But it's so peaceful out here. I wish I could stay. OK, one final quiet stand here in the middle of nothingness just to see what the roaring sound of silence really sounds like. It's late by the time I make it back to Las Vegas. The strip is in full swing, but I float above the glaring lights and blaring noise. I even feel a little bit invincible. Michael Heiser's city is not the easiest way to have an experience with art, but I'd do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Many of us make resolutions at the start of a new year, but sticking to them is hard. So take some tips from the self-described mother of reinvention who resolved to go back to college, learn comedy writing, and start a podcast in her 60s. That's later today on All Things Considered. You can listen live at your station's website or at npr.org. In the darkest days of 2020, we faced COVID without vaccines, saw massive racial justice protests, and horrific wildfires swept over the U.S. And we all took strength and comfort anywhere we could find it. Singer-songwriter Santi Gold turned to music. Her battle for survival and sanity in that time produced a powerful, subversive, and yes, uplifting album titled Spiritual. Ayesha Roscoe spoke to her in September about her process of creating the album. And she started by asking the singer about her choices to open the album with a track called My Horror. like a really raw, exposed way to introduce us to the project. What are you talking about? What are you bringing us into? What I meant when I wrote it was that I was 
suffocating. You know, I was, I was stuck in the house with my kids and I didn't have any help coming in. And I was, I had just turned two year old twins mm. at the time and a six year old. Mm. So I was cooking. I was the only one deep cleaning. I was and they changing eat all diapers. The time. They eat, they eat all, all the time. time. Oh they my eat gosh. all the time. That's all and they then, do. And then, you know, dishes. And then yeah. it was just like, I didn't have time to think. I didn't have time to shower. I didn't have time to do anything obviously creative. Like I was just drowning and like, I love motherhood and I love being a mom, but I need to have balance and I had none. But then also outside there were wildfires and we couldn't go outside. And then there was like black people getting murdered and riots and protests. And it was just like, this is too much, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Then with all that going on, people have just been deciding to disconnect. And so this song is about what it was like in my world when I was just stuck, but then also what it's like when you're living in a world of people who are just going through the motions while they're turned off. What made you want to like make this album, the name of it is Spirituals, which evokes, you know, enslaved Americans singing songs about their heartache and, and, you know, calling out to something higher than them. I called it Spirituals because for me, making this record was my own salvation, really. It was, it was an opportunity to step out of survival mode and the idea of using art and music in particular to transcend my, my circumstances and experience freedom and joy and beauty in the absence of it in my environment, to me was the same thing that Negro spirituals did for slaves in a time where they were able to experience freedom and joy through this music when they're in their environments, they were not free and there wasn't, it wasn't joyous. Let's turn to your song, No Paradise. And then you go on to say, don't know where, but going, and there's power and struggle. Like, it seems like there's a tension between optimism and realism in, in this song. Um, I wouldn't say there's a tension. I would say there's room for both of them to exist simultaneously, because I think that's, that's what is real. In, in reality, we can be fearful, optimistic, hopeful, um, all at the same time. I was just listening to Change Is Gonna Come. You know that song? By Sam Cooke? Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. I was born by the river. And I was listening to it and I was just like, man, this song is so powerful. Mm-hmm. But it's really like, he doesn't talk about the positive change is coming. No. He just talks about the struggle. So basically it's about his faith. But in that even in the expression of that very real pain and real struggle, that song is uplifting. Yeah. Because it's an opportunity to to give name to that pain and that experience, and that's uplifting in itself. That song, A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke, I mean, it, it sounds very spiritual, right? Like, it, yeah, it, it, it could easily be like a, a gospel song, and when you listen to gospel and listen to spirituals, they're not always positive. Because sometimes you just need a release. Yes. 
Yeah. I think in black women in particular, I think often we live in survival mode. And I think part of it is, is generational trauma and part of it is the reality of our everyday. But I think that one of the wonderful benefits of, of song is that it helps give name to those emotions and acknowledge them and then hold space for you to let them flow. And in that way, it's, it's evolutionary, it helps you to evolve. You know, you talked about being a Black woman, being in this industry. In the past, you've talked about how um, record labels would see you and basically say they just want you to do R&B and not much else. Do you feel like uh, you've been given more freedom now or is the industry kind of the same way that it's been? Yeah, I mean, nobody ever said to me, I want you to do R&B. They just said no to what oh. I was doing, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. nobody's ever given me anything in this industry, <laughs> you know, and mm -hmm. I think that it's like what was great about my career was that it started happening at the time of, of MySpace and of the Internet. So in the absence of me, anybody opening any doors or giving me any breaks, I just got to go straight out and, and show that there was an audience for what I was doing because they showed up online. Um, but at the same time, at the same time, if you look at, at the black women who are who have really made it, you know, high, high up on the pop charts, they're still over sexualized. And if you look at people now, it's rare that you see somebody without like their butt right in the screen or is at I me. Mean, and, you know, to everybody, their own choices. But it just sucks that that's the only option. That you is not yeah, that is not a variety. It's like yeah. if you want to make it, this is what you have to do. That you have to do. And, yeah. and that hasn't really changed. Mm. Well, I mean, it sounds like they're, you know, that they ain't ready. And I mean, I'm, I'm trying to do a segue. <laughs> that was a good <laughs> one. That was a really good one. I like that. I, I got where you're going. See where you're going with this. You have a track called Ain't Ready. And we want to, I wanted to play a little bit of that. Okay. was a really emotional song for me you know the lyrics about like getting knocked down on the floor and picking yourself up yeah. and and just kind of like telling yourself like they don't know what I possess they don't know what I can do you know but it's really about telling yourself that mm -hmm. for some reason I see this song in my head like a battle you know and almost like I am in the corner of the rink you know, where they, they rinse your face off from the mm. blood and they, they talk it to you. And this is almost like the talk to myself. Like, they ain't ready. Like, you know who you are. Third eye, everything I see coming to me, you're not ready. That was Santi Gold speaking to Aisha earlier this year. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. Aisha Roscoe is back next week. BJ Lederman does our theme music. And have a great new year.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized weight loss program designed to give people knowledge to set new goals and the tools to stick to them for good. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning and Happy New Year. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. Stay informed about a wide range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app. It is 53 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, and temperatures remaining in the mid-50s. Tonight, the lows will drop to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Monday and highs in the low 50s. Tuesday, a chance of some rain, highs in the mid-50s. Next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour, stories about change and how hard it is to make change happen. Y'all thought I was playing when I said I was mad? That wasn't a skit. That was real. Actor Britton Smith and much more. That's next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Emily Fang. Coming up, what a divided Congress means for President Biden's agenda. High schoolers step up to become community health workers. And if you're looking for book recommendations for the new year, we have them here. Plus, we meet one of Taiwan's biggest pop stars who sings in her indigenous tongue. But first, the news. It's New Year's Day, Sunday, January 1st, 2023. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. There have been more Russian attacks on Kyiv and other parts of Ukraine. The strikes came just hours into the new year and follow a barrage of missile attacks yesterday. Kyiv's regional military administration says more than two dozen incoming missiles were shot down after midnight. In his New Year message, President Volodymyr Zelensky said his country would continue to fight until victory. And he accused Moscow of following the devil with its attacks on civilians. Here he is to heard through a BBC interpreter. This war that you are waging, Russia, it is not with NATO as your propagandists lie. It is not a historic battle. 
It is for one person to remain in power until the end of his life. The British prosecutor who led the case against the Serbian president, Slobodan Milosevic, is calling for President Vladimir Putin to be tried for war crimes committed in Ukraine. Sir Jeffrey Nice told the BBC the case against the Russian leader could not be clear, saying Putin is guilty of crimes against humanity because of the bombing of civilian targets. He's not brought them back to be tried for what are obvious crimes. That's because he is in charge. They're doing what he wants, and he's a guilty man. A new law is going into effect in California, requiring increased pay transparency from employers. From member station KQED, Catherine Monahan reports. California companies with more than 15 employees will be required to include the pay scale when advertising a position starting January 1st. State Senator Monique Limon wrote the bill. Your bargaining power when you know a salary range is very different. And it turns out that when you know that information, you're actually able to negotiate a salary that's within a range commensurate to other people, whether it's a man or a woman. The new law also requires companies with more than 100 employees to report their average pay for each race, ethnicity, and sex to the state or face a fine. Limon says legislators from other states have reached out to her office, interested in crafting similar laws. For NPR News, I'm Catherine Monahan. The White House has released a statement on the death of Pope Benedict XVI, and Pierre's Marie Andrusevich reports. President Biden praised Benedict, calling the former pope a renowned theologian guided by his principles and faith. Biden, who is the second Catholic to hold the office of president, referenced remarks Benedict made during a 2008 visit to the White House when he said, quote, the need for global solidarity is as urgent as ever. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, also a practicing Catholic, released a statement calling Benedict a global leader whose devotion, scholarship, and hopeful message stirred the hearts of people of all faiths. Benedict was the first pope in 600 years to step down from the role. His funeral is to be held on Thursday with Pope Francis presiding. Maria Drusevich, NPR News, Washington. And this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Pope Benedict was known for upholding conservative Catholic teachings on a wide range of issues, including birth control, abortion, LGBTQ rights, social justice. Boston College theology professor Richard Gallardy says those teachings are part of Benedict's complicated legacy. He was responsible for putting the brakes on Vatican II. So people who thought that the spirit of Vatican II might lead to the ordination of women or a change regarding the church's teaching on homosexuality, he was quite rigorous in sort of damping those things down. Pope Emeritus Benedict died yesterday at the age of 95. Governor Baker's term ends Thursday when Governor-elect Maura Healey takes the oath of office. The legislative session also comes to an end this week. Before it wraps up, lawmakers are trying to reach agreement on legislation to crack down on the distribution of revenge porn and to create new legal processes for dealing with teen sexting. Today, the state's minimum wage increases to $15 an hour. That's up from $14.25. It's the final hike as part of a law approved five years ago. Massachusetts now has one of the highest minimum wages in the country. The federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour.
If you want to start the new year outdoors, then here's an option or a baker's dozen of options. The state is hosting 13 guided hikes today. First day hikes are planned on public lands from the Berkshires to Greater Boston. State Parks Director Priscilla Geiger says the guided walks are a good opportunity to start exploring local parks. I mean, it's amazing. We, we will meet people that will say, I've lived in this area for so many years and I've never come out here. I didn't even know that this existed or I knew that this park existed, but I've never been here. The hikes range from about one to three miles. Check on the Department of Conservation and Recreation website for exact start times, meetup locations, and rules about bringing dogs. It's 53 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today. Temperatures in the mid-50s, lows overnight in the mid-30s, then a mostly sunny Monday with tomorrow's temperatures in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang, and for Aisha Roscoe. Thank you, as always, for joining us, and Happy New Year. Let's start with politics. President Biden returns to Washington tomorrow, and Congress will be back on Tuesday for what could be a year of intense partisan conflict. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith joins us to explain how the year might play out. Good morning and Happy New Year, Tamara. Good morning, Emily. Happy New Year. Thank you. So President Biden said he'd spend these holidays talking with his family about his political future. Does that mean he's going to announce soon whether he'll run for a second term in 2024? All indications are that is where he's headed. And since the midterms, even Democrats who were openly skeptical of Biden have fallen in line behind the idea of him running again. Biden aides, including his chief of staff, have been quite bullish about the president's improved standing and the likelihood of an official announcement coming, though the timing for that announcement is less clear and they aren't feeling a ton of pressure because former President Trump, although he announced, hasn't really been campaigning. Well, Given that Democrats lost control of the House in November, what is President Biden realistically hoping to achieve uh, in the coming year? It's a divided Congress. In the first two years, Biden was shockingly successful at notching bipartisan legislative achievements right up to that big government funding bill that passed at the very end of the year. But there's a big difference this year with Republicans in charge of the House. A Republican House speaker, whoever that ends up being, whether it be Kevin McCarthy or someone else, um, is not going to want to bring up bills uh, that don't have the support of the majority of their conference. Um, so much of the Biden administration's focus this year is going to be on implementation. That is making sure that all those bipartisan bills and not bipartisan bills that passed last year, things like the Inflation Reduction Act and uh, the infrastructure bill, making sure that those are implemented well and also that voters know where they came from. All right, let's cross the aisle. What do congressional Republicans have planned? They have a long list of bills, starting with a repeal of the inflation, uh, part of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that would hire more IRS agents. But that list mostly contains ideas that aren't going anywhere in the Senate. Uh, you can also expect a wide range of investigations, everything from looking into what happened with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan to President Biden's son Hunter and his laptop. Here is James Comer, the Republican congressman expected to head up the House 
Oversight Committee in a recent appearance on Fox News. We have spent trillions of dollars, despite the fact that there have been report after report of waste, fraud, and abuse, especially with all the COVID money. And then you take the laptop, which shows that there has been influence peddling on a scale that we've never seen in the United States of America. The Biden White House is counting on Republicans overreaching with these investigations and then the White House being able to say, what about inflation? I thought they ran on inflation. Do you have a sense of whether the White House is going to cooperate with congressional Republicans on these issues you just mentioned? This week, the White House counsel sent letters to Congressman Comer, as well as Jim Jordan, uh, who's the Republican who will chair the Judiciary Committee. And both of them had made urgent requests for documents to administration officials. The White House letter said, in essence, hey, you can call us back when you are actually in the majority. Ian Sams is a spokesman for the counsel's office. Unfortunately, they're focusing on political stunts. Uh, when you make threats of subpoenas while you're still in the minority, it suggests that Maybe you're more focused on getting on Fox News than on working together on the important issues facing the American people. So I would just say that the level of cooperation is probably going to depend a lot on the nature of the investigation in question. Thank you. That's NPR's White House correspondent, Tamara Keith. You're welcome. We turn now to Brazil, where New Year's Day is also Inauguration Day. This afternoon, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva takes the presidential oath of office. It will be the third non-consecutive term for the 77-year-old leftist who narrowly beat the far-right incumbent in October. Hundreds of thousands of people are gathering in the capital, Brasilia, and security is tight. We're joined now by NPR South American correspondent Carrie Kahn. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning, Emily. So this has just been a wild ride for Lula Carey because three years ago he was sitting in prison and today he's being sworn in again as president. So what's the mood like in the Capitol? Well, the incoming administration is putting on quite a party. They are ready to party on. They're calling this Lula Palooza. Along with the inauguration, there's a huge concert with some of Brazil's uh, most famous musicians. And as you said, hundreds of thousands are taking over this usually quiet capital. I mentioned that security is really tight. What's that looking like in the capital today? It is. Brazil is very polarized right now. The ousted incumbent Jair Bolsonaro is an ultra-right nationalist, and Lula is ushering in a major political shift in the country. Bolsonaro never conceded defeat, and his followers have been defiantly camping out since last October's election in front of army barracks around the country. They want the armed forces to intervene and overturn the election, and on Christmas Eve, one of them was actually arrested in an alleged um, bombing attempt. So according to police, he wanted to sow chaos ahead of the inauguration. So security is tight right now. So as I'm listening to you describe all this, I, of course, have to think of the violence in our own capital on January 6, 2021. Are there concerns of similar violence today in Brazil at the inauguration there? There is, but officials, including Lula himself, are really trying to downplay that threat. They have a lot of police here from all over the state. Uh, the head of the electoral court even banned all guns, even for registered owners in the capital through Monday. You just mentioned Jair Bolsonaro. What about him? What has he said about the inauguration? Well, since losing, he's made very few public statements, and he's actually left the country. On Friday, he flew to Florida in a presidential plane. He will not be on hand to pass the ceremonial presidential sash to Lula. That is the tradition here. But but before leaving, Bolsonaro took to social media. He defended his legacy. He denounced violence, but he urged his supporters to keep up the fight against Lula. Does this mean that Bolsonaro never officially conceded defeat? Has he congratulated Lula? 
No, he did neither. And he continues to falsely say the election was stolen. His supporters believe that, and they too vow to fight on. Uh, Bolsonaro's party did very well in Congress, though, and will be the largest voting bloc. Um, and despite leaving the country, Bolsonaro says he will continue pushing for his right-wing policies. However, he could face criminal investigations, so it's unclear when he is actually going to return to Brazil. That's interesting. So it sounds like Lula is still going to have a strong and pretty vocal opposition for the next four years, right? What other challenges is he facing? Yes, he has a lot of challenges, uh, especially with such a large opposition to him in Congress. Uh, he's also pledged to stop Amazon deforestation, and that's going to be a major challenge. Over the last four years, Bolsonaro decimated enforcement and protection. Lula also pledges to put the poor first, as he did during his first two terms back in the 2000s. But Brazil is facing a much different and more challenging economic situation than it did back then. So that's going to be a major challenge for him. That's NPR South American correspondent Carrie Kahn. Happy New Year's and thanks for joining us. Oh, happy New Year to you. Thank you. The Tournament of Roses is the way Pasadena, California has greeted the New Year since 1890. The Rose Parade sets the stage for the big Rose Bowl college football game. This year, it's Utah versus Penn State. There's marching bands, shenanigans, and of course, elaborate flower-covered floats that make their way down a route starting at Orange Grove Boulevard. The theme of this year's parade is turning the corner. It marks a return to normal of sorts after the parade was canceled in 2021 and 2022 because of pandemic restrictions. But there's one big exception to this return to normal. The parade has a never on Sunday policy. So tomorrow, January 2nd, is the big day, which gives busy float makers a few extra hours before the event they've anticipated all year long. It makes me like grin ear to ear. I'm super excited for it. That's Benny Cruz. He's a fifth year mechanical engineering student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and came up with the university's float design. My original sketch concept was a large tree branch along the length of the float with a bunch of large mushrooms covering the float and then three main uh, snails across the length. The Cal Poly team calls their float Road to Reclamation. Even though this branch has fallen, we are reclaiming it with all this new life in the form of mushrooms and snails and uh, an inchworm and ladybugs. Benny Cruz is also construction chair, so he had to figure out how to make that sketch into a 55-foot float reality with moving parts. Right there at the front of the float, you see uh, one of our main snails with a very detailed pattern shell. And during parade, its head and eye stalks will be moving around. As you go to the very back of the float, we have our tallest element, which is like a 20-foot tall mushroom. And float construction goes way beyond design and decorations. Like, how do you get that giant mushroom under a bridge? If you want to see the parade and you wait by this bridge, you'll get to see this massive mushroom fold down about 60 degrees as we fit under this bridge and then rise back up. All that work comes with a big payoff. Cruz gets to drive the university's float. My viewport is about uh, maybe like a foot and a half wide and six inches tall. So it kind of feels like I'm driving a tank. Building a float like this is team effort with 60 student leaders and hundreds of student volunteers. We spend so much time on these floats because we love what we do. 
And the fact that we get to show it off to so many people is really just icing on the cake. So if you watch the parade tomorrow, keep an eye out for the mushroom. Benny Cruz says he'll give you a wave. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Happy New Year. It is 1018, and ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, we'll consider this week's historic inauguration in Massachusetts in our conversation with former Framingham Mayor Yvonne Spicer of the UMass Boston Center for Women in Politics and Public Policy. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Coming to WBUR City Space January 25th, journalist and historian Dart Adams discusses his book, Instead We Became Evil, about the life of Danish rapper Slyman. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 53 degrees in Boston and still mild, partly sunny today. Temperatures in the mid-50s, overnight lows in the mid-30s, then mostly sunny tomorrow with highs Monday in the low 50s. This is WBUR. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. The suspect in the fatal stabbings of four University of Idaho students is reported to be planning to waive his extradition hearing. His defense attorney told several news outlets this weekend that his client is eager to be exonerated. The 28-year-old was arrested in eastern Pennsylvania last week. Anita Pointer has died. A family statement has been posted on the Pointer sisters' website. A cause of death is not clear, but there are reports that she had cancer. She was 74. And the matchup for the college football championship is set. TCU will play defending champion Georgia. Both teams advance to the January 9th title game after this weekend's semifinals. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. On Florida's Gulf Coast, developers are buying up properties destroyed by Hurricane Ian last fall. In some cases, they're planning to build larger, more expensive homes in their place. NPR's Danielle Kay reports that could have ramifications for the area's character. The expansive sandy beaches in Fort Myers have for years attracted people from colder states like Beth and Ralph Sampson. They're from Michigan, but spend much of the year down here. It's just charming here. It it's not like the 
oh the nightlife and the I, I think the carpet gets rolled up here at nine o'clock yeah, at yeah. night you know it's not fancy like some of Florida's other coastal areas about a third of Lee County residents are low income or spend at least 40 percent of their income on rent Beth and Ralph own a home in Fort Myers Beach. It's still standing, but in October, one month after Ian hit, their neighborhood was a mess, hollowed out remnants of homes up and down their block. Beth says many of her neighbors can't rebuild. One double lot has already sold, and we don't know to who or for how on much. On Hercules, right? On the, the, the street behind us. us. It's like, oh boy, that's fast. <laughs> She's worried about what could happen to the family-friendly fishing town. I'm afraid that a big condo or somebody's going to buy it for their home and we're going to lose all that beauty that we all shared. Brad Coza, who owns a real estate brokerage in southwest Florida, says new out-of-state investors from Wall Street hedge funds to major hotel chains are already looking at new investments in the region. It is a completely blank canvas in certain areas that were extremely devastated. Koza says his firm has already been involved in acquiring 39 properties since Hurricane Ian. One of his clients bought a damaged waterfront home in Cape Coral across the bridge from Fort Myers for $670,000. After renovations, Koza expects it to sell for almost $1 million. You're going to see values jump and you are seeing a lot of new players that are now in the area that would not have been in this area pre-storm. This, Koza says, is just plain market dynamics. Many homeowners didn't have flood insurance, so they can't rebuild, and that's an opportunity investors are seizing. Older houses, in general, are more affordable. And so when you wipe out an older housing stock, even just building new, period, is going to be more expensive. Michelle Meyer directs the Hazard Reduction and Recovery Center at Texas A&M University. She says it costs a lot to build new structures up to code to make them more resilient in the face of disasters. There is federal disaster recovery money to help homeowners rebuild. In the past, states have gotten hundreds of millions of dollars from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. But Meyer says it could take a year or two before that money is available. Until then, she says local officials can encourage homeowners not to sell out of desperation. And find a way to have them hold onto their property and rebuild their property and remain in the home. Meyer says cities can also use zoning regulations like zoning for single-family homes to help support low-income residents. These first two meetings, we've tried to gear up towards the policy discussion and getting things in place and moving towards these changes that take time. Jason Green, a zoning consultant for the town of Fort Myers Beach, spoke at the local planning agency's meeting in December. Green says he doesn't think zoning in the town will change much. There are some duplexes. There's a few triplexes and quads kind of worked in there over the years. But for the most part, you'll, you'll see that there are single family homes. But there are a lot of investors who will push for bigger developments. They were doing so even before Ian hit. Joanne Summer has been trying to stop one. Southwest Florida has a different flavor, you know, to it. And we really don't want to become another Miami. But money talks. Summer has lived near Fort Myers Beach for more than 50 years. She's president of the Ostego Bay Marine Science Center. I live near the commercial fishing docks and working waterfront. In 2020, Summer and her brother sued Lee County after it rezoned to allow a high-rise apartment complex across the street from her home. They won, but one month before Hurricane Ian, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his cabinet overturned that decision, allowing the project to move forward and paving the way for more density across Lee County's hurricane-prone areas. And now? We were kind of ground zero on Hurricane Ian. Summer says she's frustrated by efforts to develop the waterfront. 
the developers want to come in and take over our working waterfront and build condominiums. So many of our areas are being sold out. But she'll keep fighting to preserve the character of the town. Danielle Kay, NPR News, Fort Myers. The public health workforce has been strained by the COVID-19 pandemic and a wave of retirements is expected. NPR's Ping Huang reports on a new source of help, high schoolers learning to become community health workers. 18-year-old Betania Fasaha spent her whole summer taking online classes on chronic disease, mental health, and contact tracing. Like, I, I feel like people are like, oh my God, you wasted your summer, things like that. But like, I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed meeting up with everyone, going through all of that, the struggle, you know, doing the modules. It took 90 hours of a curriculum designed by the Morehouse School of Medicine, followed by an internship at a local health clinic. She practiced taking weight and blood pressure readings on her family. Now, on a Saturday morning in December, Vasaha is one of the first 14 high school students to graduate from the Youth Public Health Ambassador Program in Fairfax County, Virginia. The Fairfax County Health Department is training students to become community health workers. Edu Futuro, a local nonprofit, is helping. Director Jorge Figueredo says it takes minority students with an interest in medicine and it gives them a head start on a career path. At the end of the day is that they, they successfully enroll in a college or a post-secondary institution where they will be able to get a degree in a health-related career. And then four years later, they get their first professional job. The program focuses on Hispanic, African-American, and African students from low-income families. That's because in Fairfax County, as in much of the country, these groups of people were hardest hit by COVID. Anthony Mingo from the County Health Department says one reason was not getting good information at the start of the pandemic. When there were already issues of mistrust that were historically and generationally based, and it just created a miserable stew of misinformation, as I call it. One way to address the mistrust is by training local teenagers as health influencers for their peers and for their families. And the new youth ambassadors are very excited about public health. Fisaha says it was eye-opening to learn that not having healthy, affordable grocery stores close by can lead to high blood pressure and diabetes. You don't realize that these like things that build up within our community, like how we access our food, how we make income, we don't realize how much of that impact that makes to our mental health and our physical health. Nyla Benia, a 17-year-old junior, says she learned how the medical field has lost trust with some groups. But also it was talking about the history of like ethical considerations, which I really didn't think about. Like it was talking about the cancer cells from a patient that was used without their consent. And it just made me think how like minority groups were really taken advantage of for medical research. Benia thinks she might become a pediatrician to better serve Spanish-speaking kids and parents. Fasaha wants to work on HIV-AIDS in Africa and especially Ethiopia, where her family's from. Both are among the first graduates in a pilot program that aims to train 90 students by next summer. It's just a small sliver and a Fairfax countywide project to boost health literacy and create a more diverse pipeline of public health workers. That larger project is funded with $3.8 million from the federal government. Mingo from the Fairfax County Health Department told the students that they have a long road ahead. The flame that was ignited in this program, carry it forth. Public health needs you. 
For now, in a sunny corner of a high school library, after some bleak pandemic years, everyone was glad to be part of a graduation celebrating teens getting into public health. So first, Nyla Bonilla. Betania Seha. Ping Huang, NPR News. I just got back from three months reporting in Taiwan, a place I've always loved visiting in part because they're a cultural powerhouse for producing Chinese-language pop ballads. But a whole new generation of musicians is emerging who sing not in Chinese, but in languages native to Taiwan. Musicians like A Bao, one of Taiwan's biggest pop stars. A Bao is Paiwan, one of the island's 16 recognized indigenous groups, and she sings in Paiwan, an Austronesian language. It's genre-bending music that is challenging the boundaries of Taiwanese identity. In person, Abao is vibrant. We met for dinner recently in the recesses of Taiwan's National Theater. Our conversation was frequently punctuated by her belly laughs. <laughs> and the jingle of her jewelry. That love of life and curiosity is also evident in her music, which spans electronic dance hits, draws on gospel, and is also heavily shaped by R&B. Abao credits her love of mixing music styles to her ability to code switch among Taiwan's many ethnicities and languages. When she was seven, her parents moved her out of Taiwan's rural east to the southern city of Kaohsiung so she could be near better schools with Han Chinese people. This is Taiwan's main ethnic group. My parents' generation had a tough life. They had few opportunities, so they wanted me and my sister to get the same education as the Han Chinese and not just spend time with other indigenous people. But she'd often make weekend trips back to the Paiwan community to see her parents. I was always going between my tribal life and my city life, so I got very used to code switching. And I got used to mixing a lot of things together, and that influences my music. Just under 2.5% of Taiwanese are indigenous, part of the original Austronesian people who lived on the island long before Chinese settlers and various colonial governments came and went. It's really only in the last decade that Taiwan's now ethnically Han Chinese dominant society has begun to recognize indigenous culture. And the discrimination and stereotypes indigenous people face continued even after Taiwan became a democracy. We've all met not very nice people who ask why my skin is so dark or joke that my parents are alcoholics. So Abao used her skill for languages to her advantage. My father was the first person who pushed me to learn the Taiwan language because he feared we would be bullied and we wouldn't even understand. And during his job as a taxi driver, she'd sit in the front seat with him and listen in on him and his multilingual passengers. His taxi also had a radio, and I'd listen to all sorts of music. Music sung in Taiwanese, in the Hakka language, and Western music. I remember ABBA was big then. 
Abao once sang Mandarin Chinese pop songs, but switched to writing in Taiwan after recording an album of traditional songs with her grandmother. And her music has let her rediscover and relearn the Taiwan language. Much of her songwriting process began with recording her long conversations with her mother, who died last year. People say my lyrics are like poems, but my mother and I would just chat and chat and suddenly get to a phrase and think, wow, that sentence is so funny, and that would become a lyric. That process was one of the inspirations behind one of Abao's biggest hits, called Mother Tongue, or Hinekeian in Taiwan. Mother Tongue is part of an album of the same name that won her Album of the Year and Best Indigenous Language Album at Taiwan's Golden Melody Awards, its top music accolade in 2020. Traditional music, when people think of music, they think of some elder pounding a drum. That's important too, but young indigenous people have their own way of living and their own community, and they want to be able to mix their culture with what they like. Music, she believes, is one of the most accessible ways to connect people in Taiwan. I want to slowly reduce the concept of what the other must be like. And Abao has gotten so big in Taiwan that when she gives a concert, her fans, no matter their age or ethnicity or mother tongue, they now sing the Paiwan lyrics right back at her. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. All this season. Good morning and Happy New Year. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. This will be an historic week in Massachusetts. Governor elect Maura Healey and Lieutenant Governor elect Kim Driscoll will be sworn into office on Thursday, along with the other constitutional officers. Five of the six statewide offices will be held by women. Yvonne Spicer is a lecturer on gender, leadership, and public policy at the UMass Boston Center for Women in Politics and Public Policy. She also was the first mayor of Framingham once it became a city. Massachusetts has long been known to be a progressive state. And you know, and, and to think, you know, me being the first African-American woman ever elected mayor in the state of Massachusetts. I mean, you know, and that was just, uh, you know, five years ago. So I think we're making progress, but, you know, certainly not fast enough. There's never been a Speaker of the House that has been female. I mean, it's wonderful to have my senator, Senator Spoka, as Senate president, but there's still room to grow. And when you think about the legislators, there's not as many women. I think there's 63 women out of 200 legislators. Women have long been left out of the the political arena. And, and, you know, when you think about in this country, there are only 12 women in the governorship. And uh, and when you think Maura Healy is representing on so many different fronts, and it is it speaks volumes about Massachusetts. In many ways, we can be very progressive in, in our thinking and our values and our ideas and our actions. And, and this election proved that to be true. Governor-elect Maura Healey is the first openly gay woman elected as governor in the country as well. How important do you think that is as well? When young men and women can see Maura Healey and say, yes, I am gay, I am a lesbian, I'm transgender, and this woman is the governor, 
yes, I can see myself represented. I also think, too, there's a, uh, a message that she will carry in this administration that will be inclusive and also very, very welcoming of new and different ideas. How important is it to you that Andrea Campbell is the first black woman to serve as attorney general? I mean, I think back, I met her for the first time probably back in 2017 when I was running for office. And uh, and I remember doing a show with her and uh, and just saying, that, what an extraordinary young woman. And, you know, and following her career, and I see she's where she needs to be. Once again, representation matters. And her life experience itself uh, is a testament to how perseverance is exceptional for her. And and I think she's going to bring that light, that wisdom, that experience uh, to this office. Uh, and also, I think, once again, being that beacon of light for other children of color to say, yes, you can. Yes, you can do this. Do you feel that women campaign or govern any differently than men? Women work well together when everyone feels that they have something to bring to the table. And it's that part of that circle uh, of community, of connectivity, that women bring with them. And, and that's part of who we are in raising families and taking care of each other that will make a difference. Given the incoming shift in part of the power structure in Massachusetts, what do you foresee as some tangible changes that might occur in the state? I am really hoping that um, some of the real big issues that we have seen rear their ugly head, especially during the last two years, homelessness, that's a real big factor, housing insecurity. These are some real big issues that we, we've kind of put uh, some Band-Aids on and we've done some things and I'm happy about that. But I also feel that there's so much more that needs to be done. And we need to really tackle some, uh, some serious issues around mental wellness. This pandemic really has sent us into a bit of a tailspin. K through 12 education, yeah, we, we've talked about you know, the social and emotional learning. We've talked about the learning losses. We've talked about students' trauma. All of that, all of that has affected many of us across the state. And we need to really take the lid off of some of these, these challenges because, you know, you can't get to economic uh, wellness and health and, and closing the wealth gap and, and the achievement gap if people are not able to have their basic needs met, such as housing, food security, uh, to, uh, to making sure that, you know, that they can take care of their families and they're mentally well to do so. Those are the kinds of things that I, I think we need to really uh, take the veil off of and actually address head on in this state. Yvonne Spicer from the UMass Boston Center for Women in Politics and Public Policy. WBUR brings you live coverage of the inauguration this Thursday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. I'm Christopher Lydon. Next time on Open Source, liner notes for the revolution. From Bessie Smith to Beyonce, black women have been writing and singing anthems of American life. It's a hundred-year history now recording joy, protest, heartbreak, surprise. Musical Truth Tellers next on Open Source. Today at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang, and what better way to ring in the new year than with a new puzzle? Joining us today is puzzle editor of the New York Times and Weekend Edition's puzzle master, Will Schwartz. Happy New Year, Will. Good morning, Emily. Happy New Year. Thank you. Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, I said name a prominent geographical location in the United States, change the fifth letter to an S, and the resulting string of letters from left to right will name a game, a mountain, and a popular website. What place is it? And the answer is Chesapeake Bay. Make that change. You get Chess, Peak, and eBay. Very clever. We're starting a new puzzle season off, right, with nearly a 1,000 correct submissions this week. And our lucky winner is Jim Rupke of Raffian, Virginia. Congratulations, Jim, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Hey, Happy New Year, Jim. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? Forty-some years since postcard days. Wow. <laughs> And what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, I'm semi-retired as a stonemason, and I help my wife's business of growing cut flowers and produce on our farmette in the Shenandoah Valley here in Virginia. That sounds lovely. All right, Jim, are you ready to play the puzzle? Um, facing the fire. Hopefully <laughs> it won't be a few moments of infamy, but here we go. Will, why don't you take it away? All right, Jim and Emily. Every year around this time, I do a year-end new names in the news quiz, and here's how it works. I'll name some people you probably never heard of until 2022, but who made the news during the past 12 months. You tell me who they are, and this list was compiled with the help of Kathy Baker, who played a similar quiz in the past. Here's number one. We'll start easy-ish. Katanji Brown-Jackson. She's the new U.S. Supreme Court Justice. Bingo. Number two is Liz... Truss, T-R-U-S-S, Liz Truss. Liz Truss is the new prime minister of Great of England, Great Britain. That's true, or was, I sh we should oh, say. Yeah. Uh, she was prime minister for less than two months, the shortest That's tenure much. in British history. Your next one is Carrie Lake, K-A-R-I, Carrie Lake. She ran for governor of Arizona. That's right, challenged the results. Your next one is Georgia Maloney. That's G-I-O-R-G-I-A, Georgia Maloney. I'm drawing a blank. She's the uh, new prime minister of what country? Uh, would it be Peru? No. No? Um, I'll tell you. She's the uh, first female prime minister of Italy. Okay. Here's your next one, Cassidy Hutchinson. She was uh, worked for Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and testified to the uh, January 6th Congressional Committee. Excellent. You got that exactly right. Here's your next one, Corrine Jean-Pierre. 
That's K-A-R-I-N-E, Karine Jean-Pierre. Yeah, right. Okay, she is the uh, press secretary for President Biden. You got it, the new White House press secretary. Here's your last one, Josh Wardle, W-A-R-D-L-E, Josh Wardle. Going out with a bang here. Thank you. Um, he, he he created the Wordle puzzle. He created <laughs> the Wordle, which I play every day, and it sounds like you're a Wordle fan, too. Nice job. Great job, Jim. I can tell you've been listening to NPR. How do you feel after that? I feel all right. I feel all right. Came through okay. Well, for playing our puzzle today, you're going to get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And one last question, Jim. What member station do you listen to? WMRA out of Harrisonburg, Virginia, and we're sustaining members. Wonderful. That's Jim Repke of Raffian, Virginia. Thank you for playing today. Thanks for having me and wishing you both a good new year. Thank, Thank you. you. So, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, name a U.S. state capital for which the name of another well-known U.S. city is an antonym. And the second city has a population of more than 100,000. So again, name a U.S. state capital, and there is another well-known U.S. city whose name means exactly the opposite of that state capital, and that other city has a population of more than 100,000. What cities are these? When you think you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, January 5th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air, like Jim today, with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Emily. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. If one of your New Year's resolutions is to read more books, but you don't know where to start, well, we've got some help for you. Andrew Limbong hosts NPR's Book of the Day podcast, and he's here with an early look at some new books coming out in 2023. Hey, Andrew. Happy New Year. Hey, Emily. Happy New Year. Okay, so hit me up with some book recommendations. What novels are people in the book world excited about this year? All right, so let's get some heavy hitters out of the way up top. Uh, Colson Whitehead, who's got two Pulitzers under his belt, one for the Underground Railroad and the other for his book Nickel Boys. He's got a new book coming out. Um, it's called Crook Manifesto. It takes place in Harlem in the 1970s, and it's about a retired criminal and furniture store owner Ray Carney, who, you know, for a couple of reasons, has to unretire from crime. Um, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because the book is actually a sequel to Whitehead's previous book, Harlem Shuffle. Like most of Whitehead's work, that book got a lot of praise when it came out, so there are some high expectations when this new one drops this summer. Um, and there's also a new book coming out by Rebecca Mackay. Uh, she's famous for her 2018 book, The Great Believers, which won a bunch of awards, and she was a finalist for the National Book Awards. So this new one is super anticipated. It's titled, I Have Some Questions for You. Um, and <laughs> Mackay herself describes it as the, quote, the literary feminist boarding school murder mystery you didn't know you needed. <laughs> I need that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about, um, it's about a successful podcaster named Bodie Kane returning to her boarding school alma mater to teach a class um, and dig into this like decades-old mystery of a murdered classmate. And it just so happens that two of Bodhi's own students are doing this sort of like true crime serial style podcast about it. And 
you know, it's about memory and complicity and how we've evolved in our thinking about sexual assault. So those are just some of the big name authors with books coming out. Hmm. And speaking of big names, I've got my ear to the ground, and I gather mm-hmm. there is a highly anticipated new book from Salman Rushdie that's supposed to come out as well? Yeah, this will actually be Rushdie's first book since he was stabbed while on stage back in August. Um, it's called The Victory City. It was announced well before the attack, which didn't seem to have any impact on the book's release schedule. And it's being promoted as like a return to Rushdie's magical realism roots, and it tells this epic story over the course of over 200 years. What about some nonfiction books? All right, so um, in 2016, sociology professor Matthew Desmond came out with his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Evicted, which I think it's fair to say changed the way a lot of people looked at evictions in this country. You know, it showed how being evicted can make it impossible to ever get steady housing, which means it's hard to lock down a job or keep your kids in school. Now, Desmond's got a new book coming out called Poverty by America, and it's a like just as in-depth look into how the wealthy in our society knowingly exploit poor people and keep them in poverty. If you're in the mood for something, you know, like a little lighter, uh, Prince Harry's coming out with a memoir in just a few weeks titled Spare. And there's been a lot of like back and forth speculation about how detailed it'll get about the royal family. What? About younger listeners, anything for teens who might be listening to the show or for adults who love young adult fiction? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, there's actually this uh, debut YA novel coming out called Blood Debts by uh, Terry J. Benton Walker that's been getting some buzz. It's a fantasy book that takes place in current day New Orleans. And it's about these two teenage twins who are heirs to like a magical family. They've got to solve a mystery about who's coming for their family. It's the type of book that opens with like multiple family trees to just give you a sense of scope that this book is going for. Okay, what about you, Andrew? What are you most looking forward to? Okay, R.F. Kuang's novel Yellowface is the book I'm I'm really hyped about. Um, it's about these two rival up-and-coming writers, right? June Hayward and Athena Liu. And when Athena dies, June steals her manuscript, which is about Chinese laborers, and promotes it as her own, and like rebrands herself as like an ethnically ambiguous literary superstar. You know, it's supposed to be this really sharp critique at the publishing industry itself. Thank you. That was Andrew Limbong, host of NPR's Book of the Day podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Emily. In the 1950s, painter Jonah Kinnickstein was on the verge of making it big. But that didn't happen. Yet, unlike many aspiring artists who realize they cannot make a living doing what they love, Kinnickstein did not quit. He still paints every day at the age of 99. NPR's Matthew Sherman has his story. For a while, it seemed like Jonah Kinnigstein was going somewhere. He won a Fulbright, got into the Whitney Museum, and caught the attention of a prominent gallery owner. I went down with some photos, and she says, all right, we'll take you on for a while. That gallerist was Edith Halpert. She represented painters who become legends, like Jacob Lawrence, Ben Shahn, and Georgia O'Keeffe. She held famous American artists, so it really was a good place to be. Halpert was such an important part of the art world then that the Jewish Museum in New York organized an exhibit about her a few years ago. Rebecca Shaken was its curator. I can't imagine how he felt at the time. It must have been like winning the lottery. Once, Life magazine even profiled her, along with nine of her artists. Kinnigstein was one of them. So this is an article that ran in Life magazine in 1952. New crop of painting protégés. 
Except what happened next changed art history forever and derailed Koenigstein's career, hopes, and dreams. In the years after World War II, figurative art, that modeled more or less on real life, coexisted with abstract art, like Jackson Pollock's drip paintings or Mark Rothko's color fields. But eventually, abstract art won the day. All kind of modes of art making that had seemed to work in the past, a kind of figurative mode of showing people in pain or in anguish, it didn't seem like it could really capture the sort of general sense of existential dread. Kinnickstein was a figurative painter. His subjects were rabbis, saints, circus barkers, often exaggerated and expressionistic, but mimicking real life. By 1960, he couldn't convince anyone to give him a show. The rejection stung. I mean, I made painting after painting, and uh, I always felt, you know, I was doing my best. To him, abstract painting took no talent, no skill, no ability to observe the world around you. That's, of course, a common complaint about modern art. You know, I saw a guy right in front of my eyes going from real, real painting to you know, like he laid the painting down on a floor and he started to splash around. I couldn't talk to that guy. I really couldn't talk to him. Kinnickstein married, had two kids, and made his living doing lithographs and commercial art. In 1961, he designed Bloomingdale's first ever collectible shopping bag. And he never stopped painting. His studio on the third floor of his house in Brooklyn has got hundreds of his paintings in it. They're of cabarets, dance halls, churches, or Jewish shtetls. The figures look grotesque, emaciated, or like they're having fun at the expense of someone else. This is Coney Island. I was born in Coney Island. It's a painting of a funhouse, a devil standing above the entrance with a sign. Hellhole. Then there's an impressionistic one of St. Anthony with a long beard and tattered clothing. He was tempted by women, you know, and uh, he was a religious guy. Kinnickstein also draws cartoons. They look like something out of a 19th century political magazine, except his lampooned the art establishment that promoted abstract painting. Here's the original engraving. One of them is based on a famous Rembrandt, The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp, except the cadaver on the bed is labeled figurative painting, and the men around him, cutting him up, are gallery dealers, critics, curators, and auction houses. All these guys are making fun of them. They're all wearing funny hats. A few times, Kinnickstein took these cartoons to New York's gallery district, Soho, and pasted them onto building walls and lampposts getting into arguments with people who would come by, then people taking them off, wanting him to sign them. That's Eileen, his second wife. I was in the getaway car, you know. <laughs> I, I drove the getaway car. Kinnickstein's long since reconciled himself to not being popular. Oh, I can't change anybody's mind. No. And recently, he's gotten a little recognition. Fantagraphics, arguably the most important art comics publisher in the U.S., came out with a collection of his cartoons in 2014. Gary Groth knew he wanted to publish them the day he opened Kinnickstein's submission. They were clearly not drawn by a young person because they displayed a level of craft. They were also extraordinarily well drawn. 
And then I looked at the content and every single one of them was a ferocious attack on abstract expressionism. Next, Roth turned his attention to Kinnigstein's paintings. I thought he was at least as good a painter as he was an editorial cartoonist. And painting was, was actually his first love. That book, Unrepentant Artist, The Paintings of Jonah Kinnigstein, appeared this summer. Abstract expressionism is long since gone, followed by pop art, minimalism, postmodernism. Now, figurative painting is sort of coming back, but that's not why Kinnigstein's doing it. I don't paint for anybody, you know? I know what I want. In June, Kinnigstein will turn 100. Matthew Sherman, NPR News, New York. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Emily Fang. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing the data behind American diversity on its new podcast season, Race and Research, available at pewtrusts.org NPR. And from the NPR Wine Club, bringing wines from around the world to members with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this first day of 2023. Happy New Year. It is 53 degrees in Boston. Some sunshine today and temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org donate. The ball has dropped. The new year is here, along with resolutions to live your best life in 2023. But big goals can fall away fast. When you choose something that's an intention, like just be more creative or make art, there are lots of different ways you can live and breathe that in the year ahead. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. We'll talk with Life Kids' Mariel Segarra about rethinking the way we approach resolutions. On the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.